was the first time growing up that you knew that you were in a special kind of family? Well, you know, it, it was strange. My dad, during the Colombo, the gallo profaci War, which was in the early 50s, um, I'll never forget, my dad had moved us out of our house in Brooklyn, me and my mom. And we were at my grandmother's house in Long Island. And my dad had been gone for a couple of days. And I, I was probably five years old when this happened. But you know how some things just stand out in your head? I never forgot this. Uh, and all of a sudden, one morning, my dad came to the house. And he, had a, he hadn't shaved in days. And he had a heavy beard to begin with. And his right-hand guy, Joey Brancata, was on the porch and kind of standing guard. I noticed that. I didn't know what he was doing out there. But it was, it was strange that he didn't come in because I knew him as Uncle Joey. And I saw my dad hug my mom, and she was emotional. She was crying. And then he came over to me and hugged me and just asked me how I was doing. And he was probably 15 or 20 minutes, and then he left. And it always stuck out in my mind, like, what was going on? Where was dad going? What was that all about? Never explained to me again. Five years old, you really don't know. Welcome to Game of Crimes. You know, Steve, I thought we should have started this episode with some theme music, which we actually do in the actual episode. So I won't I won't spoil the surprise. But everybody, welcome back. My name is Morgan Wright. I am your co-host of this thing, this thing of ours we call it the Game of Crimes. And I'm here literally with my consigliere, my uh my chief capo. Yeah. That would Murph. be you, Murph. Yeah. <laughs> it comes across in you know, when it comes out Southern Irish, that doesn't sound very Italian, does it? No, it doesn't sound Italian <laughs> like Marv. But that's okay. Your name doesn't – well, your name technically does end in a vowel. Why is a vowel? Yeah. Absolutely. It's not an I, though, or an it's E. It's not an I or an O. Yeah, usually an O. So anyway, this we're leading into it. So thank you guys for joining us. We'll talk a little bit about why we're talking like this, like this thing of ours. Anyway, just some quick housekeeping because that's what Ron Burgundy says. He'll read anything that's on the teleprompter. Housekeeping? Hey, hit that Apple review and Spotify review. Give us those five stars because Cinco stars, they really make a difference let people know that we're out there, we're still kicking, we're alive, and we're producing. I think we, we've gotten some great messages, too. I think that's one of the things mm -hmm. we're going to do, Steve. I'm going to collect some of the messages we have and read what people have sent us. And seriously, we're very humbled by the, what you guys say about us. We're just little farm boys, little humble, you know, hillbillies and farm boys. But uh, we really appreciate what you guys say about us. But keep saying it. Oh, we're at Spotify and Apple. Also, head on over to our website. You definitely want to be at our website for this one because the gentleman we're going to talk about here in a little bit has six books out. Oh, yeah. Six books and uh, great stuff. So head on over to our webcast, our webcast, our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got our book list there, merch, uh, our mailing list, and pictures. There'll be some good pictures, especially for this one. Also, follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes po Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram but where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be. Steve, I will ask you one more time, where do you got to be? You got to come over to Patreon and listen to some of the uh, the postings that we're putting on there. The content is unbelievable. We have as much content on Patreon, if not more, than what we have on the regular podcast. Everything from you can't make this shit up to 911, what's your emergency, to in-depth interviews with Javier and I talking about the Medellin cartel, and now Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell talking about the Cali cartel. It's just, it just keeps going and going and going. It's, it's amazing how much we've got on there. I'm shocked. 
I'm shocked too when I sit down at each month and I realize if this were a job, we would be making less than minimum wage for all the hours oh, we put yeah. in. But, uh, we, but we're having, but it doesn't matter. We're not doing it for the money. Now we take the money, don't get us wrong, but we're not doing it just for the money. We're doing it because we enjoy this. This is fun. And we really appreciate everybody who supports us at Patreon. Our people at Evil is Coming, uh, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne Levels. You guys are all players in our books. And you know what, too, Morgan, is is uh, we have, based on comments, we've gotten back positive comments. We get back cr- some crappy comments every once in a while. We might even read some of those one of these days. But um, based on a lot of the good comments we're getting, we're changing people's minds about law enforcement, about you know, the realization that the cops are just people, too trying to serve the public. They're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And it's because, and we don't proselytize folks. We stay away from politics. So hopefully you guys will know that, that, and that's one of the things I've seen just a quick aside, but I've seen, we do, Hey, look folks, we, we check out other podcasts. We see what people are saying, what they like, what they don't like. And one thing where people get rated down lower, people are very vocal about is when things start getting too political, they start, you know, becoming your personal agendas and stuff. So we're just going to stick to letting the people tell their story. And trust me, we have some stories coming up, uh, we just rescheduled one today because our, our equipment oh, yeah. didn't come in. But it's this one is going to be this is going to be a victim, yes. and this story is going to be amazing. But anyway, we shall get to that shortly after we tell you about PayPal.com. Just use our email address, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or PayPal.me/slash Game of Crimes. Whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you even more exciting content. But this is a disclaimer. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We do take the story seriously, but... You know we don't take ourselves serious. Yeah, and before before we get into taking ourselves seriously, guess what time it is, Murph? I'm going to guess it's time for... Almost. One quick announcement. Um, <laughs> you did this to me last time. <laughs> I know. I just want to mention it again. So if you guys want to join, uh, we have a Game of Crimes fans page out there run by uh, our favorite mafia queen sandy salvato so Mm -hmm. just just go to facebook type in game of crimes fans plural game of crimes fans answer a couple easy questions and uh, join the group and let's have some fun so but now well no her her name does end in a vowel so don't piss yeah it does and she's she's got some connections that's all i can say i know some things i know i can't tell you about (laughs) them but i know some things i know i got a guy i got a guy Mm -hmm. anyway now, Steve, it is. It is that time. Guess what time it is? It's time for... You start it, because I'm, I'm going to start saying it, and then you're not going to go. <laughs> it's time for... Small, Small Town, town Police Blotters. Hopefully all the buildup for this is worth it this time. <laughs> I love it. Steve, uh, in your times, I know that you had rip-offs, you know, when you were a DEA agent, people ripping people off, and uh, you probably, when Bluefield, you worked uh, a couple crimes, you know, armed robberies and stuff. We had people ripping us off in DEA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's one of the strangest weapons you ever saw in an armed robbery? Oh, strange? Mm, I mean, other than just a knife or a gun, nothing, maybe a, a tool out of your toolbox, a hammer, something like that. Police say two teens robbed a convenience store Wednesday using a snowball as a weapon. One teen grabbed candy while a second teen threw a snowball striking the clerk at the convenient (laughs) mart on Shaw Avenue in the chest. Police say the pair then ran from the store with about $10 worth of candy. If you know who these idiots are, call police. A (laughs) snowball. (laughs) Twelve? Uh, They they were two teens. Yeah, two teens. Two two youths. Uh, Two youths. That's all we can say. Two youths. Grief. Well, <laughs> that's not so much an assault as it is creating a distraction to try yeah. to distract the clerk. But uh, snowball. Give me, g- give me that stuff, or I'm going to hit you with the snowball. There's a rock in it. It can really hurt. <laughs> it can put an eye out. All right. 
Steve. As, they, as he proceeds to hit him in the chest with it. Chest with it, right. So, Steve, in the 1100 block of West Grand Avenue, um, you probably had these things happen, too. You get disturbance calls, right? People mm-hmm. drinking beer, yelling loud. Mm-hmm. I bet you never had a duck in a parking lot drinking beer and yelling at people. You're absolutely right. I've never done that. <laughs> and how do you yell at people as a duck and drink beer? But according to uh, this blotter in the 1100 block of West Grand Avenue, someone reported that a duck was in a parking yacht drinking beer and yelling at people at 8.14 p.m. on Friday. Now, the person <laughs> that reported that, were they drinking? They must have been, dude, because if you see a duck out there drinking <laughs> beer and yelling at people, unless it's the Aflac duck, I don't think you're going to find anybody who's got that kind of ability. They don't have opposable thumbs. They can't hold a beer can. And, and what, did, what was the duck saying? Because apparently he knew he was, he was pissed off about something. Yeah, I, I don't know what it was, Steve, but we, we will endeavor to get to the bottom of this. Trust me, an investigation has been opened. We have a case number assigned. Mm-hmm. You ready? All yes. Right. You, you're going to be the lead investigator, too, by the way. Congrats. Yeah, it's going to be a quick investigation, I promise you. Steve, you know you know the old saying about um, it's like people will go down and they'll see this turtle on the fence post, and the question is, well, how did the turtle get there, right? You know, mm-hmm. How did the turtle get on that fence post? Well, mm-hmm. this lady obviously isn't aware of that saying. A woman called police when she found an upside-down turtle on her front lawn. The officers told her to turn the turtle right side up. (laughs) She did, but she called back to report that the turtle had no arms, legs, or a head. (laughs) And the police said, don't worry. And the turtle fled in an unknown direction before police arrived. They'll grow back. (laughs) How'd she even know it was a turtle? (laughs) Oh, Unbelievable. Oh. That, just, uh, that, that should go over on our episode on Patreon. You can't make this shit up. <laughs> oh, man, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's a turtle. It, it's hiding. Yeah. Um, as George Costanza said famously in that episode of Seinfeld, it's shrinkage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a shrinkage. So, so anyway, thus endeth the reading for today. Kyrie Domine Danes Requiem. It is over now. Let's get to the good stuff because yes. this is a result. Uh, this has been a while in the making. Uh, you ran into this gentleman a year ago. Then we ran into him just about a month ago at the Southern California Gang Conference. And Mel Sosa and all those great guys down there, Santee, yeah. you know, you guys, you name it. Everybody's been hooking us up with people. And this guy was no exception, was he, Steve? Not at all. Um, Michael is... Uh... Uh, he's he's a legend. I mean, once we tell you who we're talking about here, look him up. This guy is all over the the social media, the internet. He's got a worldwide speaking business. As a matter of fact, as we're speaking right now, he's over in Europe doing a 25-city tour, I believe is what he told us he was doing. We caught him just a couple days before he took off on this tour. His his story is remarkable. The things that he went through, um, obviously there's certain, certain things that uh, he didn't really want to talk about. But a really motivational story. Somebody who was on the wrong side of the law and and, uh, got straightened out. He doesn't shy away from his responsibilities, and he's not trying to blame it on anybody else. He accepts responsibility for all his actions, and now he's trying to atone for them. So uh, this is one of the best interviews we've had. Well, and it's good because this guy, Michael Michael Franzese, F-R-A-N-Z-E-S-E, or as he said, it could be Franzese or Franzese was a capo regime in the Colombo crime family. This was a made man in the Colombo crime family running one of the biggest scams ever. And in fact, it was so big. You'll hear the one point one time he says, even the FBI came by and says, look, we're not going to use this information. Just tell us how you're doing it. It's like, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Uh, forget about it. Forget about it. But I will tell you the one thing. 
Had you and I been on the case, we could have got that information out of him because he says towards the end of the of, the, of our interview with him, he goes, he had, an, he had a Lyft or an Uber coming for me. He, he didn't realize it. He says, look, we've been here so long. This is fun. He says, this is, it's, time has flown. You know, we, Steve, you and I could have got the information out of him back in the day. We would have asked him very nicely and kept him there. Train criminal investigators. That's who you're dealing with here. Don't. PCIs. That's right. Yeah. But now, but now we are TCPs, trained criminal podcasters. Well, I should <laughs> criminal podcast. Train <laughs> podcasters about criminals. TPCs. I'm not me. I'm just a turtle in Florida. Just to turn I hope I don't roll over because that lady <laughs> won't know what to do with me. <laughs> You're going to be fucked if you roll over, man, because I'm just going to leave you there. Murph can't get up, and he's got no arms, legs, or head. All right. Poor guy. Uh, but seriously, back to Michael. Just yep. so proud of this young – oh, he's not a young man, but uh, proud of, of what he – how he has changed his life to do the right thing. Um, he's Christian now, and and uh, he's trying to get the word out. He speaks to prisoners inside the prisons to about yep. you know, he he speaks to uh, young people around to try to keep them out of a life of crime. Very very impressive individual that you're going to hear today. And one quick insight: we're going to get to the episode, but let me tell you, Murph and I have made a decision. We you know we have talked to people who are on the wrong side of the law and changed it. You know, and then like him, uh, uh, Ken Rijok. We've talked with Luis Navia. We've talked now, you know, uh, Michael Franzisi. We have drawn the line. Uh, we've had several people say, hey, can you interview these guys? They were cops that went dirty, no. sold out their officers. And we said, no, we're, we're not interviewing those guys because for us, uh, they didn't start on the right side of the or they didn't start on the wrong side of the law. They started on the right side of the law and they went to the wrong direction. So yep. that's that's just so you guys know, uh, that's something we chose. We choose not to interview at this point. Now, wh- why you might say it's hypocritical, we interviewing Michael Franzisi. Because he cha- he literally changed his life around. He has done a lot of good for the community. He did his time. In fact, when you listen to a story about how he did his time, you realize that uh, he his he he this was a life and death decision to walk away from the mob. And so, before we get any farther into it, let me just ask him if there's only one way we're going to find out about it. Let me ask you: Are you ready to play this thing of ours we call? The biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. You know, I come to you, Don Corleone, the game of crimes. <laughs> hey, everybody, I apologize. <laughs> he thinks he's got a good accent. <laughs> but having said that, this is this is truly an exciting and motivational story. So get in, sit down, shut up, hold on. Here we go with Michael. Well, folks, we told you out of the Southern California Gang Conference, we got to meet a lot of interesting people. And I tell you right now, our next guest, not only is he interesting, he could still probably kick my ass at his age. He just turned 71. We know that. We saw that. We actually were watching some of your videos. So we want to welcome, and this is a unique honor too, because this man was a true made member of the Colombo crime family. He's done a lot of things after that, but welcome to Game of Crimes, Michael Frenzies. Well, great to be here. Hey, Michael, hey, it's an honor to have you on here, and, and there's no doubt in my mind you couldn't kick his butt if you wanted to, and you look a whole <laughs> lot younger than Morgan does, so that's pretty cool. I know. No, dude, I, my hair makes me look good. Please, come on. No, we, we got good genes in the family. My dad passed away at 103, so he looked at about 80 when he passed, so wow, we're wow. fortunate in that regard. You know, my well, grandmother said the secret to getting compliments when you get older is not to say that you're younger than you are. Like when she was 75, she told people she was 88, and they go, oh my God, you look so good for your age. <laughs> She, well, she's got it right. You look at Morgan. He's 49. He doesn't look a day away, too. <laughs> no, man. You know, funny, my age and your IQ almost the same, Murph. There you uh, go. Sorry, this is going to be fun. Hey, but Michael, the reason we were so impressed when we saw you out there, 
a lot of people, I, I will tell you, there was one other person that was out there. I, I don't want to go into details, but you know who I'm talking about because you shared a stage. We both came from a similar occupational background, but I had zero respect for that person. Uh, just be just be candid. We had a tremendous amount of respect for you and, and not because of what you did before. I mean, that's we're on opposite sides, but it's what you've done since. And, that, and that's where I thought when I heard you talk and we heard you talk about these things. I mean, this you talk about a road of you talk about redemption. I mean, you exemplify what redemption really means and why people ought to get a break who do what you do. So, but before we get started, I normally say, "Hey, you know, how did you get started in this thing of ours?" That's really very appropriate for yours. But I got to ask you one question though. We actually teed up something. Godfather Mafia. Okay, here we got a quick quick question because you got the Godfather uh, poster on the back there. Murph didn't know this. He remembered it after I told him. So you remember the theme to the Godfather? Absolutely. Did you know there were words to it? Uh, I, well, I heard that, but I never heard the words. Hang on. Oh, wait a minute. Andy Williams. That's right. 19, 1972. He sings a little high for me, though. We'll play a couple seconds. Speak softly, love, and hold me warm against your heart. Morgan, let me let me correct that. I did hear that long time ago. So yeah, when, when you as soon as I heard it, I, I remembered Andy Williams. But yeah, yeah. he was terrific. terrific. A lot of people don't remember that there were words to the song. Yeah. You know, until you hear the song, and then you, you oh yeah, oh, no. we've all heard it. Of course, you could say that, Murph. You didn't know. You go, oh yeah, I remember it now. How would we know? Well, I've it's got to get a mute button on this side, Michael, so I can just <laughs> shut him It's a game down, show. Yeah. If you don't come up with the answer, man, there's no after. You, you don't get, you know, family feud. You don't get the answer 30 seconds later. But, uh, Michael, let's start. Let's make this podcast is actually about you. Let's start off. Most people, we don't go so far back in their family because, you know, we really don't talk about it a lot. However, one person that is very similar to you, Dominic Polifrone, was the ATF agent who worked the case against Richard Kuklinski. And his similar background, but we want to talk about yours. And so I don't want to say, hey, when you were a youth and squatting lean clothes, but when was the first time growing up that you knew that you were in a special kind of family? Well, first of all, Morgan, let me just thank you for the compliment you gave me. I appreciate it. And just know that I, uh, I am extremely blessed and, you know, it's, it's been a long journey for me, but very fortunate that I am where I am now. But, you know, it, it was strange. My dad... During the Colombo, the Gallo-Profaci War, which was in the early 50s, um, I'll never forget, my dad had moved us out of our house in Brooklyn, me and my mom. And we were at my grandmother's house in Long Island. And my dad had been gone for a couple of days. And I, I was probably five years old when this happened. But you know how some things just stand out in your head? I never forgot this. Uh, and all of a sudden, one morning, my dad came to the house. And he, had a, he hadn't shaved in days, and he had a heavy beard to begin with. And his right-hand guy, Joey Brancata, was on the porch and kind of standing guard. I noticed that. I didn't know what he was doing out there, but it was, it was strange that he didn't come in because I knew him as Uncle Joey. And I saw my dad hug my mom, and she was emotional. She was crying. And then he came over to me and hugged me and just asked me how I was doing. And it was probably 15 or 20 minutes, and then he left. And it always stuck out in my mind, like, what was going on? Where was dad going? What was that all about? Never explained to me again, five years old, you really don't know. But then right after that war, um, things started to really heat up for my dad. He started to become a major target of law enforcement. We had law enforcement 
uh, agents around us all the time from several different agencies. So it was really for me at a young age that I knew there was something going on with my dad that I couldn't pinpoint. What did your dad say about it, though? How did he explain it away uh, even then? Like, why are the cops hanging around? You know, Morgan, he never did. My dad never sat down with the family and explained what was going on. The only thing he ever told me uh, in, in all of this, you know, he never wanted to bring what was outside into the family. He just didn't talk about it. But what he told me one time, I'll never forget. He says, Mike, you never want to be a cop because a cop takes an oath to uh, lock up their own father and mother. That's the only <laughs> thing he ever said. <laughs> you know what? He, I was gotta, talking about, he was talking about Morgan. That's who he was talking about. I got accused of that one time. Somebody said, you'd write your own mother a ticket. I said, that is totally incorrect. I, however, would detain her until another trooper came over. But isn't, uh, it, no. isn't it something that that's the only and the first thing he said to me in a young age? And then he never explained anything else about his life, about what he was, nothing. You know, he's just like, okay, this is normal stuff. You know, we never got an explanation. Well, so how old were you about, during that time? Were you in grade school, middle school? Yeah, I mean, it started in grade school, you know. Um, really, my dad became a major target, I would say around 59, 60. And I was, uh, you know, nine years old, 10 years old uh, when this all happened. So, and he was he was kind of the John Gotti of his day in terms of media attention and, and law enforcement investigations. And, you know, you, you both know that their uh, investigation was very different back then. Today, everything is very covert. Back then, it was wide out in the open. And when my dad had seven or eight different agencies parked around our house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So as a family, anytime we went anywhere, we had a parade of law enforcement vehicles following us. That's great protection for the family, right? Yeah, it was. <laughs> you could get parking yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Anywhere. Hey, Mike, two, I wanna, uh, two things I want to ask. One, do you prefer Mike or Michael? Uh, it doesn't matter. My mo my mother would get insulted if you called me Mike, but uh, well, we'll every, call you Michael then. Yeah, that's right. Everyone is I, I was going to say Mr. Franzese, but no, uh, no, 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 no. That's, well, that's not the necessary. second question. How do you pronounce your last name correctly? It's it's Fran the American way is Franzese. Okay. The Italian way is Francisi. The okay. Z is Francisi. kind of like a C. Yeah. So we won't screw well, it up either way. Yeah, we'll, you, we'll screw you it up both it. ways. I don't know. Well, you know what? Uh, I've been called things I don't even answer to. I don't know how they mess it up. <laughs> well, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you have some of some of the more creative names, though. Uh, you know, we, we got you know we got the the, the traditional stuff. Um, but you know, it's kind of this is going to sound like a weird analogy, but you'll see where I'm going. When I, especially when I started off as a trooper, but before I became a detective, you know, we were very focused on got to be safe. So my family would get in, we'd strap them in the car. And then when my daughters and sons started driving, that's all they ever knew, right? They get in the car, they knew to put the seatbelt on. And that's what I was going to ask you is, did you ever, I mean, were you, was it kind of in from the beginning is that this was going to be your life? Did you know anything different or this was, it seemed like this was the only, you didn't know exactly what it was, but you knew it was something, right? Correct. It, was it kind of preordained that this was going to be your path? Well, this was it. But, you know, initially my dad didn't want this life for me. He wanted me to go to school, get an education, be a doctor. He was dead set on that for me. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why he never discussed the details of the intricacies of his life with me. You know, everything I learned about my dad at an early age was from the media, was from other people, was from observation, never from him. And even my mom, she wouldn't get explicit about it and explain things. So it's all from the outside world. Did your, but your mom knew though, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How did he explain his, uh, what did he say he did for a job though? 
Well, you know, he, he did a couple of things. He did have some legitimate businesses. He had a, a dry cleaning uh, place in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, that we would visit every once in a while. He also was involved in the uh, um, entertainment business and the record business. He was uh, uh, had a silent ownership in a, a, a record label called Buddha Records, Buddha Casablanca. And I would go up there frequently with him in Manhattan. Um, you know, so any he big had, stars you came across? Uh, oh, did he did he get any of them? Absolutely, Marvin Gaye, Dion Warwick, all those bubblegum. No kidding. You know, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, we That's knew them impressive. all. Oh yeah, That's impressive. Um, so I met them all in an early age. You know, we used to. I used to love going up to the uh, the offices in the studio and watch them. You know, uh, record and all of that. So yeah, he was involved in that. He also had an auto body shop out in Long Island. That I eventually went to work for in the summer when I wasn't wasn't in school, so he did have legitimate things, and that's what I thought he earned his income on. And when you say legitimate, those weren't fronts for anything, right? He was just running those as straight legitimate, pay your taxes, be good kind of businesses. Yeah, those those were. I, I didn't see anything illegal going on in any of those. So as you started to mature, and you started, you know, you like kids do, they start becoming self aware about stuff. When did you really realize, hey, my dad, my family? They're in the family. I mean, this this is when was when was that really exposed to you the first time? Well, when I really got, I mean, other people told me it was amazing. We had a uh, a maid, a housekeeper, live in that was from uh, England originally, and she started telling me a lot of things about my dad. You know, her name was Pauline. I'll never forget. And then in 1964, I believe it was, I was 13 years old. Newsday, a uh, big publication out Long Island, came out with a story called "The Hood in Your Neighborhood." And that just wrote, it was a long story. Actually, I think it was a series of stories. And it just kind of laid out everything about my dad, his involvement in the Colombo family, you know, and everything that he did. So that was kind of eye-opening for me. Well, is the is the stigma or the myth, I don't know what, it, what you'd call it, of when you're in the family like that, you only associate with other Italians? Is that, did you grow up like that? No, that's not true. Um, okay. You know, we associate with everybody. Um you know, obviously, you know, within the organization, it's all Italian, but uh, mm -hmm. we associate with everybody. So you're starting to grow up. When, and this is a question I asked you down there. I said, this is one of the things I was very curious about. You reach a point in your life, like you said, he wanted you to become a doctor. He wanted you to do something else. So you reach this, like Yogi Bear says, when you get to a fork in the road, take it, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So what fork did you take and why? When was that time when you knew that, hey, if I go left, I'm following my dad. If I go right, I'm going to be a doctor, lawyer, you know, whatever it is. When did that kind of age, uh, when was that age approximately? Well, Morgan, I was, uh, I was a, uh, a pre-med student in Hofstra University, and I was going to be a doctor. And up until that time, in the 60s, my dad was indicted uh, three times in the state of New York for some very serious crimes, grand larceny and murder. He went to trial. He was acquitted in all three cases. Then in 1966, he was indicted uh, in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. After a lengthy trial, he was convicted and sentenced to 50 years in prison. 1970, he loses all his appeals. He goes off to Leavenworth Penitentiary to do his time. During that time, uh, I visited my dad at MDC, the federal jail, and I said, Dad, what's up with this you know, bank robbery thing? And he looked me in the eye and he said, son, I was framed. I'm not a bank robber. I'm innocent. He said, all the witnesses testified against me were all drug addicts. You know, I hate anything to do with drugs, which I knew. My dad, from an early age, put the fear of drugs in my head. He hated anything to do with it. So I believed him. I said, hey, you're innocent. You're 50 years old. 
if you last out this sentence, you're going to die in prison. At the same time, Joe Colombo, who was the boss of our family, took me under his wing. I got involved with the Italian-American Civil Rights League as a way to help my father out of prison. I started to meet a lot of my dad's friends. Mike, what are you doing going to school? If you don't help your father out, he's going to die in jail. And so I go see my father in Leavenworth. I said, Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. And that's when he, you know, after a discussion that we had, he wasn't happy initially, but uh, then he said, son, if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. And he told me to go home. Somebody will be in touch with you. Just do what you're told. And he proposed me for membership in the life. And that was around 1972. So, Morgan, I never aspired to be a mob guy. I, I love my dad. I idolized him. He was a great father to me. But I didn't want to follow in his footsteps initially. But it was that turn of events that said, OK, I got to step it up and help my dad. Oh, she's a beautiful one, huh? <laughs> Yeah, Mur Murph's lucky. Uh, you know, he he definitely married up, and he's got better grandkids than he should be entitled to, man. <laughs> well, that's Murph, you and, I, you and I are in that same category, so that's thank God for that. Uh, God, God's blessed us with five granddaughters so far. That was just oh, one of them. Oh my gosh! She, well, she's getting ready. I, she spent the night last night. She's getting ready to go home, but we're getting together tonight for my my daughter's in from the D.C. area, and we're celebrating Father's Day tonight, which which is why we had to kind of push on you just a little bit. Oh, that's that's wow. excellent. Actually, when I leave here, not well later this afternoon, my ten-year-old granddaughter is in a she's an all-star. She's in a softball tournament, so I'm going to see her. Very and nice. I, I have uh, six grandkids. I got yeah. uh, only 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 one daughter though. I got five boys. Believe that. Yeah, yeah. We're <laughs> still waiting what? on a boy to come along. But there's yeah. less drama with boys than girls. I'm telling you, <laughs> yeah, less drama. <laughs> We were yeah. playing, uh, you know, I'll tell this on myself earlier today between we, we've been doing some other recordings today. I had to go play pretty, pretty princess and I've got a bracelet on. I get clear earrings. I got a tiara. Like I told my wife, anybody ever takes a picture of this, I'm calling my friend, Michael Francis. We'll see what happens. <laughs> and I'll, I'll handle it for you. And you know what? I just screwed up. I got two granddaughters. I'm sorry. And four, oh, yeah. and four grandsons. I don't want to insult either one of them. Yeah. No, oh, no but beautiful. you've been doing a ton of traveling and we're lucky because we'll talk about that a little bit. We're getting you before you do your big UK tour. So we're going to focus yeah, on that. Absolutely. But let's go back to that too. During, before you were put up for membership and you said in the life, is that, I mean, every every occupation has its term of art, you know, has its way it refers to things. Is that the way you guys referred to it? And I say you guys, but you know, did it, was it called the life or yeah. how did, pretty, how was you referred to? Pretty much so, you know, the life, um, you know, you're not supposed to name it. You're not supposed to talk about it unless, you know, within, within, uh, you know, yourselves. So you say the life, um, that can mean anything, you know, everything we tried to do later on that became unsuccessful, obviously, but, was to use buzzwords and catchphrases that never indicated that we were part of Mafia, Cosa Nostra, you know, things like that. Hey, let, let's let's pierce a, another myth, or if there is, because um, uh, at one time there was a lot. I remember when the government held hearings and they were looking at organized crime, and there was a lot of effort, especially I, th I believe from the Italian side, and I'm not sure if it was the same league you belong to, but they said there's no such thing as La Cosa Nostra. Yeah, that's just a fiction, right? I mean, there was a big marketing push on that to to get away from using that term, saying that doesn't exist. Well, that was Joe Colombo's Italian-American Civil Rights League. And the way that came about, Joe Colombo's son, uh, Joey Jr., had been indicted by uh, the feds on a certain thing that he said was a, a frame up. And uh, so he started the league. You know, it was funny. Uh, shortly after my dad went into prison, I got a call from Joe Colombo's guys, and they said, be on the corner of 69th Street and 3rd Avenue. We're going to be picketing the FBI building. 
that's how it all started. And that league grew from uh, 30 of us online the first day to 50,000 in the second uh, annual uh, uh, march that we had on Columbus Day. That's the day Joe Colombo, the attempted assassination on him. But uh, yeah, the league really grew and there is no mafia. You know, we had influence at that time over the movie, The Godfather. We took mafia out of the script. A lot of things occurred uh, as a result of the league's efforts back then. And of course, uh, we know that uh, <laughs> we know what that was all about. <laughs> I, and I love the way you put that. We had influence over the script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's let's talk about one of your books. Make them an offer they can't refuse. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But there's a little bit of trivia. Murph, I think you brought it up, right? Were you featured not by name, but maybe by character in the movie The Godfather? You know, everybody says that because the Michael character kind of, you know, uh, parallels my life. You know, father, he was a legitimate guy. Then his father attempted assassination yeah. that he gets into life. So everybody says that, you know, oh, they, they patterned, uh, you know, your life is like the Godfather. And I said, wait a second. I came before the Godfather. So maybe the Godfather's <laughs> like me. You know, I tease them with that. But there, there's really no connection. Well, what no about connection. the movie uh, Goodfellas? Well, I was I was in that movie, and when I went to see the movie, I was kind of shocked because you know those that's a different family. It has nothing to do with me, but I knew Henry Hill very well. I knew Jimmy Burke, so the writer Nick Pileggi is a friend, and I said, "Hey, Nick, why'd you throw me in that movie?" He said, "Well, you know, you knew those guys, and you had some name value, so I figured I'd throw you in there." I said, "Well, why not? Thanks a lot." <laughs> Talk about throwing you right in the fire, right? Yeah. Well, let, let's go back to 69th Avenue or 69th Street and Third Avenue. Um, but before that, you said that your dad had told you, okay, if you're going to get into this, you're going to do it the right way. So let's talk about what is the right way? What was that? What did you do? How did you get started in this thing you call the life? Well, you know, he proposed me for membership to become a made guy, you know, a soldier in the family. So um, after What's that process? I mean, I hate to interrupt, but don't, you know it so well, but I think so many people have been fascinated. We've done kind of a masterclass on organized crime in Canada, had a guy named Stephen Matelski who knew all the, the families there. And it's so interesting. A lot of people don't understand the process. They see the outcome, they see the sausage, you know, but they don't know how it's made. So mm -hmm. when they say they're going to put you up for membership, what does that really mean? Do you go right into being a made guy or do you have to no. make your bones on the street first? Well, two weeks after um, my dad proposed me, I got a, a call from a captain in the family, actually a soldier in the family. He took me to see the boss at that time, who was acting boss for Carmine Persico. And his name is Tom DeBella. He's passed away. And uh, I sat with Tom and he said, Mike, I have a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of our life. Is that true? And I said, yes. He said, well, here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family, the Colombo family. That means if your mother is sick and she's dying and we call you to service, you leave your mother, you come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. When and if we feel you deserve this privilege, this honor to become a member, we'll let you know. That's it. And wow. from that point on, 24-7, you're on call to, to serve the family in whatever capacity they ask you to. And uh, that's kind of a recruit period. And I was in that period for about two and a half years. What was the first thing they asked you to do? Well, uh, the, my captain at the time, Andrew Russo, who again just passed away, uh, said to me, Mike, be on Carroll Street. That's where the head headquarters were for the Columbos at that point in time. At, uh, uh, they had a social club there called The Diplomat. He said, wear a suit and be there tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. And then whatever you're told to do, a lot of it is just hanging around. I, uh, I always had a nice car at that point. So they used to make me drive them a lot, the boss and, uh, and Andrew. And uh, so, 
you know, there was one time, I'll give you an example. I, I took them to Junior's Delicatessen in Brooklyn, and they said, wait in the car until we come out, because I was only a recruit. I wasn't privy to a lot of the conversation they had. And uh, I'm in the car three hours, three and a half hours. I said, man, one of these guys coming out, right? So I get out of the car to go up to the newsstand to get a newspaper. Um, and as I'm walking back, they come to the car. I'm not there, right? So they're looking at me like, where are you? So I get in the car and I got such a tongue lashing. They said, what if we would have been in trouble in there? We had to get out right away. What if the cops came and there was a shootout? Uh, and they gave me hell, you know, over something like that. So another time I, I had to be in Brooklyn at eight o'clock. I come in on the Belt Parkway, traffic, accident, the whole thing. I get there about 840. Oh, my gosh. You would have thought that I committed the worst crime in the world, you know, for being late. You're never allowed to be late in that life. If you got to sleep out two days before, you get there on time. So the next day, I'm in uh, Monty's restaurant. They told me, meet me there at 1 o'clock. So I get there at 12 o'clock. I'm standing outside, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4. Finally, they pull up in a car. They rolled down the window. They said, did you get the point? I said, I got it. They said, now go home. <laughs> oh, man. So a lot of stuff like that. And then, look, you know, I, I always try to be as honest as I can with uh, with people listening in. There's violence in that life. And if you're called upon, you know, you got to do it. And, and that's the bottom line. But, you know, I, I don't I don't know if you guys know this, but we had an expression it was it was nationwide at that time that the books were closed. They weren't making any new guys. And the only time they would bring a new guy into the family is if somebody died and they had to replace him. Other than that, they weren't allowed to make any new guys. So from 55, around 55 or 57, until the early 70s when the books opened, there were guys waiting 20 years to get made. 20 years. So now I get made and people say, well, you got to make your bones right away. Well, you know, you had over a hundred guys that had to get made. There ain't a hundred guys that you got to, that around that to make your bones with, you know? So, you you know, they, they feel you have what it takes. And then when your time comes, your time comes when you're told to do something. But, um, you know, I, I finally took the oath on uh, Halloween night, 1975. That's when I got in formally. Now, what does that, what does that mean when you say make your bones? Well, you know, listen, you know, you got to kill somebody. I mean, that's the bottom line. If you're asked or told to do that, you can't refuse the order. Now, I will say this, you know, there is a separation of power in that life. What I mean by that is you got the gangster and you got the racketeer. Now, the racketeer is a combination of both, meaning that if he's told to do something that's a violent act, he still has to do it. However, the racketeer is the moneymaker in that family. You know, that's the category I was in. And when you got somebody that's earning money for the family, you try to protect them because you got plenty of guys around that are not making a dime that are actually a drain on the family that can do the heavy work and the grunt work. And that's how, you know, the boss normally separated things there. So fortunately, I was in the uh, I was an earner and I made a lot of money for them. So they uh, they, they kept me in good shape in, in that regard. So let's start before we talk about your ceremony. Let's talk to about the structure. You talk about that's the way the family. So I've seen some org charts. I don't know how accurate some of those are because at one point you were called, they, I guess they shortened the name to Capo, but it's Capo Regime. Correct. Right. But kind of tell us the structure. How does it work from the boss on down? You know, uh, if you're looking like, you know, sometimes it looks like a military or a police chart, you know, they got everything yes. lined up, but how does that work? So down to the point of where you started, as you work up the ranks, what are those names and what's, what's important about each, like each level? Okay. Well, you have the boss and that's it. He's, he's the boss of the family. 
Then you got the underboss who is handpicked by the boss to be the second in command. And then you have the consigliere who's kind of a, an advisor to the family. The real, the real role of the consigliere is he's supposed to be an intermediary between the soldiers and, uh, and the boss. So if the soldier has a complaint or he has something he's dissatisfied with, he goes to the consigliere to straighten it out. The problem with that is that if you complain about the boss to the consigliere who is handpicked by the boss, you're probably going to be in trouble. You don't make complaints in that life. <laughs> so, so it's boss, underboss, consigliere. Then you have your cop regimes and then you have your soldiers. And that's it. There's no other official rank in that family. So it's soldier, capo, consigliere, underboss, boss. And then you have associates who did not take the oath. They're not part of that life. And they're just guys that around us that we use or kind of like support or. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, if you got a guy that's a, a bookmaker, right, he's on the street, he's not a made guy, but he's with me. That's the expression. Well, he's protected because he's an associate of mine, associate of the family. He knows what the score is, but he's not privy to any of our secret information or anything like that. Now, did the capos report into the consigliere? Uh, I, I almost wanted to say consigliere, but consigliere, is that the pronunciation? Consigliere, yeah. Consigliere. Now, was that was that a like a direct report or was that like a dotted line? Could you go past him to go up the line to go to the underboss or did you always have to go through him? No, the uh, a capo can go directly to the boss. There's okay. no uh, there's no buffer between them. I mean, you can go to the underboss. And normally you go to the boss, and if the un if the boss is not available, then you talk to the underboss. But you know, but you can go as a capo, you can go directly to boss because the the boss selects the capos. It's not it, there's no voting. You know, the boss says, "All right, I want these ten guys to be my capo regimes." Now, did you have an advantage because you were a legacy because your dad was a made member? Well, I, I, yes, I had an advantage because uh, when my father asked to have me made. Uh, I was in one of the first batches. I, I was I jumped ahead of guys waiting 20 years. Now, some people resented that. But on the other hand, you know, my father was a very well-respected person in that life. And when he asked for something, you know, they, they did it. Um, and remember, there's a lot of nepotism in that life. A lot of fathers bring their sons in, their relatives in, and it's basically security purposes. So it was very common for, uh, you know, like Persico, my boss, he made his sons. Uh, Joe Colombo made his sons. You know, Carlo Gambino made his nephews. I mean, it's it's very, very uh, it's like Hollywood, you know, nepotism. It's, it's oh, it yeah. exists. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah. Yes. But you mentioned a thing I want to talk about later, too. You said it's for protection because obviously infiltration. I know you've talked with Joe Pistone. You know, we've talked about the Donnie Brasco having a deep cover infiltration like that has got a you know, that that's one of the probably the most I don't want to say damaging things, but it's a very damaging thing that can happen to a family because now they're on the inside. But I want to talk to you about that in a little bit. Um, when you how did you find out and what was the process for you becoming a made guy? What What is that like to the average person? They see Goodfellows or they see Godfather and they have this idea that it's supposed to be like that. How much is that is true versus how is it really done? Well, you know, you're learning the ropes. You're, you're learning the respect, the discipline, the authority. You're learning the right way to talk, you know, how to respond to people. Um, you, you have to, at the same time, kind of show your value. You know, um, what is your worth here? Are, are you just a thug, a street guy, or, or do you have a real value for the family? So I was fortunate in that I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. And when I'm benefiting myself in business, I'm benefiting, benefiting the family because they get a piece of a lot of things that you're doing, especially if it's anything on the street, they get a piece of. So 
you got to prove yourself that there's some value to you. And then, of course, if you're given an order to do something, you got to do it. So um, and that's a process that could last six weeks, could last six years, could last six months. You don't know. Whenever they decide that you're worthy, uh, that's when you get the call. And for me, like I said, it was about two and a half years. Uh, guys waited 20 years, you know, to get in. But you said Halloween night, though, right? Yes. And uh, well, was that was, was that intentional or is that just the way it worked out? Uh, you know, it was just a secure night. Everybody else was trick or treating and we were doing our thing. So uh, they just selected that night uh, as as for security purposes. Again, it was a, it was the right night to do it. Well, tell us about how that went. You say you got a call. So what what is it? What was it like? Well, you never told in advance, but I, I got a call from my captain at time. He said, meet me at such and such a place at such and such a time. And but that that was common. I got that call almost every other day. You know, were you told to dress up or anything or just a regular normal call? Well, he said, wear a suit. But again, that's not the only time I was told to wear a suit in two and a half years. And most of the time I did anyway when I went into Brooklyn. So I lived in Long Island at the time. So uh, when I got there, I had a sense that something was up because they don't want to tell anybody in advance, because remember, this is a very secret, covert operation that we're handling here. So um, uh, then I was told from there, uh, I got in a car with somebody. We drove around quite a bit to make sure we weren't being followed. And I ended up at a catering hall that was owned by Joe Colombo's son, Anthony Colombo, called the uh, Casabella, I believe it was. And there was five other guys uh, that met with me. They were all recruits. And that night, the five of us actually took the oath and uh, went through that ceremony. How much are you, I mean, I, I know that um, allegiances still run deep on certain things. How much of that can you talk about and how much of it do you feel comfortable talking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked about it in the past. Um, you know, look, that was, uh, I waited two and a half years for that. And for me, there was a sense of, wow, I'm going to be part of something my father is part of. Uh, it was very exhilarating. I'll, I'll be honest with you, especially after waiting all that time and and uh, you know doing what I had to do to prove myself. So it was an exhilarating night for me. It really was, and it was it's a very solemn ceremony. I mean, this is a dimly lit room, late at night. They wanted you to understand the seriousness of what you were getting involved in. And what happened? We walked into a room individually as we were called in, and the boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration. The underboss and the consigliere to his left and right, and all the captains were alongside of them. Uh, we had about 15 in our family at that point. The soldiers are not, are not allowed to attend that. It's only the, the hierarchy. And uh, walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand. He took a, a knife and a, and a pin, and he, he cut my finger. Some blood dropped on the floor. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, a Catholic altar card, put it in my hands and lit it aflame. It didn't hurt. It burned quickly. It was merely symbolic. Some people say oh, it was a sign of to see how strong you are that you can hold the fire. No, it burnt right away. It was, it was symbolic. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into Cousin Ostra. Violate what you know about this life. Betray your brothers and you'll die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Do you accept? Yes, I do. That's it. It's very quick. Uh, and very to the point. And that was it. And then I walked into another room and uh, all the other guys went in because I think I was the first to be called that night. And then after everybody took the oath, we all went into the room and we had a banquet. You know, we do what Italians do. We eat after everything. <laughs> and I'll never forget, Morgan, you know, one of the guys came in that day, the irony of it, and he was holding a paper bag. And he said, OK, boss, should I give them all their bag of money now? 
<laughs> and, and the irony is because people think you come into that life and all of a sudden they're handing you money. It's just the opposite. You, you come go into out and that, earn. You got to go out and earn and you got to prove it and you got to contribute and uh, you got to, you know, you got to prove your worth in that life. So I got that. Uh, that was made clear to me early on. I understood that. So and that's how it started. And then you go. Well, Dad, you said so. Anything you're earning along the way here, uh, especially if it's on the street, that the family gets a piece of it. Is there an established percentage? I mean, do you get to, what amount do you get to keep? Do you have to give it all to them and they piecemeal it back to you? How's all that work? Well, I'll tell you, I had an experience. Uh, during... Well, Murph, you're running out of mo- money down there making that pool. You're looking for a new line of work, are you? <laughs> yeah, we got the hole in the ground, but we don't have the water in it yet. <laughs> well, maybe I can help you out, Murph. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. All right, Michael. I know a guy. You. I got a guy. I'll call yeah. you separately. My, my rates are cheap, half point a week. How's that? I got you, brother. I got you. Oh, man, he's got you on the vig there, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Just like the um, old days, right? We used to charge a point, but we, we reduced it. But anyway. See, I'm getting a discount rate. Yeah, I'll give <laughs> you a discount. Friends We're friends. Yeah. We're friends. <laughs> so anyhow, you know, a guy comes to me with a load of meat. He had a load of meat that he hijacked. And so like a good guy, I bring it into the family and I put it on record. I got a load of meat. And he says, okay, when you sell it, he asked me, my captain says, can you sell it? I said, I think so. So I sell it. I get about $6,500 or $7,000. I give the whole thing to my captain, right? A day or two later, he gives me back $600. And I said, wait a second, $6,500. I get $600. I get 10%. I said, when it was my score. So I'll never forget, I went to see my dad after that. I said, hey, dad, what gives? He said, no, 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 you don't ever do that again. He said, you, you make the score, and then you bring in you know, your percentage. And I said, what percentage would that be? He said, 25%. Anything on the street that you develop, you give the family 25%. Anything legitimate? You don't give them anything unless they contribute in some way. So that was the formula that I used from that point on. If it was my deal and I brought it in, the family gets 25%. If they contributed or put money up or did something more to help me get the deal, then then they got a little bit more. But my legitimate business, they didn't get any part of it all. Hey, wow. Let me walk back to when your, your ceremony. What was the real, did you, you know, there's, like you said, a lot of realizations that was exhilarating, but at the same time, did you realize my dad's in prison right now, and now I've just put a big target on my back because I'm no longer just a soldier. I'm a capo. Well, Morgan, up to that point, I had already been indicted four times. I mean, well, see, now you sandbagged us, Michael. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, you know, I didn't even, I, I forget all this time. You know, it's, you know, it's funny. Oh, I forgot my four indictments too. I'm sorry. Just slipped my mind. Well, you know, the minute, the second that I got involved in any way on the street, I had a bullseye on my back. And, you know, the state, the state indicted me four times. I On beat what? It. it was grand larceny. I got to be honest. It was all nonsense, Morgan. Nonsense. It was, yeah. And I, I went to trial and the trials were, I, I either was acquitted or the judge dismissed it. It was nonsense. But Was there any uh, hanky-panky going on to make sure you got acquitted? No, no, honestly. I had the worst lawyer in the world. I don't even <laughs> I don't even know how I got acquitted, right? Because I didn't have any money. I couldn't even afford a good attorney. And he was terrible. But the case was so bad, the jury just they they just rejected. Was it just their way of just messing with you? Oh, and yeah. just I mean, just just to let you know, hey, we can do this, just keep wasting your time dragging you through the courts. No no doubt. And it was an amateur move by the state. Now the feds then got me on their radar, but you know that came later on. I mean, I, I I understand. I was told this, and it was it was a fact that at some point in time, I had a fourteen agency task force that would meet every other week. That their total um, 
uh, reason to be in existence was to put me away forever. And yeah, it was, it's documented. It's true. And I couldn't believe it. I said, my God, you know, what is this? So I, I mean, I got arrested like 18 times. They messed with me a lot. And I, I ended up with seven indictments throughout my lifetime. I had, I had five, to- five indictments more than my father almost, you know? Wow. But, uh, hey, let's go back to one other thing you mentioned, though, because I'm interested. Um, you said when you drove there, you drove around a lot to try and detect surveillance. You know, like you said, it was different back in the day. Things are far more covert now. I mean, the FBI has obviously gotten better at it. You know, other folks have gotten better at it. But um, did they teach you anything about how to detect surveillance or was it more just drive around and look for guys, you know, the same car, you know, making the same turns as you? Was there any training at all? Well, you know, I'll tell you the training my father gave me whenever we would talk in the house. And this is the truth. He would go into the bathroom. We had a downstairs bathroom. He would turn the faucets on and he would flush the toilet and we would have our heads in the sink to muffle any kind of uh, sound. He said, Mike, there could be a bug in this house. I thought he was crazy. I said, Dad, this is ridiculous. You know, let's go outside. He said, no, you don't understand. They have those guns. They can shoot and they can pick up your conversation from a long range. He was that protective of it, you know. So that's what instilled it in my head. Mm -hmm. You know, I would never talk near a parking meter or anything like that. So I was from an early on, my dad schooled me about surveillance, but we didn't get any formal training. I mean, look, I had guys come in and, and, uh, you know, sweep the office, but I knew the next day they can install another bug after it's. So, you know, we were very careful, but a lot of guys were very careless. And there was so much damage done by surveillance tapes and undercover recordings that I mean, any secret we had was just exposed just by guys' own own mouths and own talking. Yeah, sorry about that. I, you guys have grandkids right now. I got a cat walking across <laughs> my desk. Oh, that's hey, okay. But, uh, yeah, the other thing too is you could always. It was easy to tell which families uh, had made members of the, uh, uh, you know, the. Colombo family, whatever, you just check their water bill. Man, you guys used 3,000 gallons last month. Yeah, we had to have a lot of conversations. Yes, yes. Yeah, I get up and flush a lot during the night. Um, but how now, your dad, How? Uh, when did he pass away? Uh, uh, 2021. 2021. Yeah. So at some point he got out of prison, right? He, my dad was released from prison. Well, here's the story. He did 40 years on the 50. Uh, which was the maximum, but he was in and out five times on parole violations because he was under the old law. So he kept getting parole, but he kept violating and going back. He went back back. five times. So he was released at the age of 100. He was the oldest inmate in the federal system at the time of his release. And then he- Yeah, I don't think he's he's much of a threat at 100, my goodness. No, but he, uh, what did I say he died? He died two years ago. So he died in, uh, in 2020, I'm sorry, just when COVID started. And uh, he was 103 when he passed. Well, the reason I ask that is then obviously at some point you're able to go back to your dad because he's in prison and doing time. What were those visits like now that you remember, you know, once you were made guy and you're going back, did the visits, the nature of the visits change the things you talk about? Because you also have to worry about, um, you know, your conversations being monitored in prison as well, because you're a capo. I mean, you're a capo in the Colombo crime family. You're not just like, get a hey. I'm just here to visit my cousin. Uh, everybody knows who you're there to visit, and they know who you are. Yes. Well, you know, a lot was keeping my dad up to date on uh, what was going on in the family, what was going on in our business, because I made him my partner in everything that I did. So I just kept him up to date, you know, on all the goings on. And we had a lot of, you know, very serious discussions because, honestly, my dad had a plan. 
he he wanted me at one point in time to be the boss of the family and then he would be you know silently behind me you know telling me how to how to handle things because he had so much experience um and he thought that that would one day materialize he really felt that way because Persico, our boss, uh, you know, he was in and out of jail all the time. We were loyal to him, but the guy was always in trouble. I mean, he died in, in prison eventually. And uh, my dad, if my dad didn't go to jail, he probably would have been the boss. He was the underboss. He probably would have been the boss of the family. He was very well respected. So I think he had aspirations of, of that happening one day. So he was schooling me a lot, you know, telling me, you know, how to navigate, you know, some of the pitfalls in that life. And look, he was a master of it. So I listened intently and it benefited me. Uh, no question about it. Were, uh, were your, any of your conversations uh, intercepted while you were in prison that no. you know of? No, none that I know of. All right. I mean, remember, we, we, were, we, we sat across a table with one another. We weren't on phones or anything, so we were able mm. to talk. And the same thing, he would whisper in my ear and I'd whisper in his ear. I mean, we were very careful. When it was anything that we thought was sensitive, we did. So you guys, were you guys in prison together in the same prison? Uh, for one night only. They okay. had us and then they separated us immediately. Uh, but yeah, we only got one night together. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> wow. Well, we'll go back to that in a minute because uh, we're uh, kind of working up into a lot of that. So mm -hmm. going back though, but once you make Capo, how do you, because... When you look at your books, you obviously have a keen mind for business. I, you know, I've saw your books, read a couple. I mean, I'm halfway through a couple of them. The ones I'm very interested in is some of the YouTube things you talk about. You do keynotes on business because you ran a huge business. I mean, you had all the different things. In fact, I think the one um, scam you ran on gasoline sales tax, gas tax, you had like 15 different front companies and stock corporations. And I mean, you learned a lot about business. So when you became a capo, do you guys do you guys normally gravitate towards your areas of strength? Like you said, there's gangsters, there's racketeers, or certain pieces of that business. How do you decide what is your thing, and how do you deconflict that with other people who might be overlapping, doing the same kind of thing? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you you go where your your expertise is, I guess. And like I said earlier, I had a uh, I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business, and I was very entrepreneurial. I was very aggressive. Uh, I wanted to make money on the street because, number one, I needed money to help my dad out. You know, hiring lawyers and investigators and going to court is, is very expensive. It's costly. Plus, there was a point in time where let me let me dispel one, another myth, you know, that when you go to prison, the mob takes care of you and your family forever. That's absolutely false. Not true at all. My dad had some businesses going on the street, mostly, you know, um, you know, he had a, a, a gambling business. He had a shylocking business. When that money ran out, it ran out. That was it. So I picked up the, you know, the, the baton and I was supporting my mother and my brothers and sisters for a time. So, um, you know, I had to make money. And uh, again, fortunate. And I had a business sense. And so um, I, I used that to help me in business. And, and that's kind of the direction that I went in. And um, but I mean, nobody... Nobody tells you this is what you need to do business wise. You're out there to make your money your way. And, you know, some guys got involved with unions. Some guys uh, tried to be a bookmaker. You know, it all depends. Other guys had just no show jobs. So you kind of, you know, water reaches its own level. And that's how it is in that life. What was off limits for you? Drugs. No drugs. Why? Because of your dad's influence? No, no. We were told, you know, I, I get a lot of uh, blowback on this when I say that during my time in that life, we were told straight out, we get involved with drugs, we die, period. 
was outlawed. We weren't allowed to do it. Now, were some guys doing it on the side and on the sneak? Yeah. I mean, they were because, look, they're street guys. They want to make a dollar. If they can't make it any other way, they're going to go to drugs, which was you know, a fairly easy racket at the time. But we were not allowed to do it. I knew guys that got killed over doing it in that time. Mm-hmm. Why? Why no drugs? You know, no good in the community. Brings too much law enforcement heat. It's just not what we're into, and we don't want it. And uh, we were told straight out. And and that was it. And so I never got I I personally hated anything to do with drugs because my sister and brother were both drug addicts. One of them died of an overdose. My younger sister, and my brother, you know, had that uh, addiction for 25 years, drove us out of our minds. Uh, you know, look, if it wasn't for me and my father, my brother would have been killed long ago. You know, all the trouble he got himself into. So I hated drugs. Never, never. I, I never even smoked marijuana in my life. Never stayed away from it. So. Uh, but that was off limits. Prostitution was not looked upon favorably. Honestly, there were some guys that were doing porno stuff, you know, with movies and everything, but it wasn't looked favorably upon, but it wasn't outlawed. But drugs for sure. What was the most profitable piece of the business for the family overall? And then what which pieces were you involved in? Tremendous amount of money was generated through the unions, which I personally was involved in also union control. Um, a lot of bookmaking, gambling, you know, a lot of Shylock money out on the street, lending money at usurious rates. Yes, I was going to say, tell people, uh, you know, a lot of people hear the term, but a lot of people don't know what it means. They get extortion or racketeering. What's Shylocking? It's it's lending money out uh, on usurious rates, high interest rates. And uh, I had a lot of money on the street. Um, as a matter of fact, a Chevrolet, a Chevrolet agency that I owned, I obtained because I lent the guy money and he couldn't pay me back. And I took his agency. I let him go to work for me, but I took it from him. So what were those rates like? So if you loaned somebody, what was like, somebody says, hey, I need uh, five large, you know, what were the rates like? What was the terms when somebody would take money from you? Well, everybody was different, but I had a, uh, I had a uh, a formula. I would give it to my guys, like uh, my associates, if they had somebody they wanted to lend money to, they would come to me and I would lend them the money at a half a point a week, sometimes a point a week, depending upon who it was, 1% a week or a half a percent a week. And they, in turn, would lend it out to whoever they wanted to. And the reason I gave it to them cheap, because I said, look, I don't want to hear that you don't get paid. I don't want to know from nothing. I'm giving you the money. If you throw it in the toilet, that's up to you. But every week, you come back with half a point or a point. That's the deal. So I I wouldn't ask where they were sending it. Um, If I lent it to a business, it all depended. It could have been a point. It could have been five points. It could have been three points. It all depended on the circumstance, the business, the owner. How, how long a term they would take it out. Uh, but listen, that was very attractive because there's so many guys in business on the street that just can't go to a bank for a loan. And they would come to us. So and if, I, you, if you gave it to them for five points, that's five points a week? A week, yeah. Wow. Normally. And I would tell them straight out, if you can't pay it, don't take it. Don't take it. Don't. Uh, you might be desperate, you, but you'll be more desperate later on. So don't take this. You know, Stick it out. I would give them the whole speech beforehand and uh, but most of the time they take it. What was your um, what was your default rate? Well, you know, listen, I always looked at it this way. And again, everybody's different. It doesn't pay to break a guy's legs or put him in the hospital because he mean, can't pay you back if he yeah, can't work. Right? I mean, to me, that 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 I was going against. I was defeating my own purpose. So I was pretty good with that. You know, we figured out other ways to get paid. Um, so what I didn't like is if somebody ran away or hid from me or, you know, a lot of times 
I, I lent money to a gambler one time, and uh, it was against my better judgment, but I did it. And, uh, you know, he, he couldn't pay me. And I found out that, you know, he was he was going to people all over the Brooklyn, you know, trying to get money because he was gambling with different bookmakers until everybody found out what he was doing. But I didn't have to take care of that. He other people took care of that because he was just that kind of guy. It was, it was a mistake. But, you know, normally for me, it was really business. When I lent somebody the, the money, I wanted to say, OK, um, you know, if something goes wrong, do you have a business that I can get involved in and then maybe make your business even better. You know, the Chevrolet agency, when I took it from him, I said, look, I don't want to, I don't want to run a business. I don't want to take it from you, but you're going to lose it. You're a degenerate gambler. You're blowing all the money. You're borrowing money from the wrong people. You're going to lose the agency. So I'm going to take it and I'm going to put you to work, run the place for me, but I own it at this point. And I made him sign the, the agency over to me. And, and, and that's how it worked out. I and mean, he lost all the money anyway, you know? So uh, at least I had that kind of collateral. But that's how I approached it. Other guys did it differently. Well, but you talk about running a business. Let's talk about records because records are what IRS guys, FBI guys like to get on folks like you. So when you were running the business, how did you keep track of stuff to where you knew what was where, but not to the point of where somebody raids your house? It's like, I just lent so much money to this guy, one of my soldiers at half a point a week, and he's loaning it to this guy. You know, how did you do it in such a way to protect yourself, but at the same time, keep good records? It was really all, most of the things I did were by memory or very cryptic notes that I would keep myself. Um, I didn't give them out to anybody else. The only, the only time that that was violated, I would think, was when I got into the gasoline business and my partner at the time was keeping records of how much money he was giving to me. Now, I didn't know this. And he tried to use that against me. He became an informant and he tried to use that against me, um, you know, when, when he started, uh, you know, cooperating with the government. But my personally, I did not keep records of things on the street. I had cryptic notes to remind myself of something, but most of it was in my head. Wow. I mean, that's how much money at a time at, at your zenith? How much money did you have out on the street? I had about two million dollars out on the street at, at the I mean, height of it. And if people were paying you back on a regular basis, that two million turns into how much money? It was. Uh, I, I was. I was getting about you know probably thirty thousand a week was coming in on that. Wow, I could, I could probably survive off of that. <laughs> you yeah. buy some, I don't have the two million though. <laughs> yeah, you, you could buy some highfalutin cat food with yeah. that down there, Murph. Well, don't forget, hey, you know, when I was in the gas business, we were making an insane amount of money, and. Uh, you know, it enabled me to do a lot of different things. But uh, that was, you know, that's a once in a lifetime deal, uh, Morgan, honestly. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Cause that's, that's one of the things we wanted to ask you about. We saw that that was, you, you just talked about the guy about how he kept records. He started informing. So if I remember, was this guy, was this the guy from California? No, he was, uh, he was a New York guy. He was a New York guy. Okay. Yeah. How did you how did you get involved in the gasoline? I mean, you've done a lot of businesses, right? But the gasoline business, it's just like another business, right? To yeah. you? Well, you know, um, a lot of people have this myth that mob guys sit in our social clubs and we we figure out how to target a certain business, a legitimate business. And it normally doesn't happen that way. Normally what happens is somebody from the business uh, that's operating comes to us. They got a scheme. They got a plan. They want to defraud their company. They come to us for protection, for money, for help. That's how it normally happens. So in this particular case, there's a guy in the gas business. He had a small operation out on Long Island. And he came to me because two guys from another family were extorting him. 
And I was kind of the guy on Long Island. I was very well known. So he came to me for help. And uh, initially I said, no. I said, no, worry about your own problems. But he kept coming back. And finally, I said, why do you keep bothering me? He said, look, I have an idea. He said, maybe we can defraud the government. We can make some money, but I need your help. And when he said defraud the government, I said, "Okay." they were my enemies. Anyhow, the way I looked at it, I said, so explain (laughs) it to me. So he explained it to me what he thinks he could do. So I said, all right, we're going to give it a shot. So I was able to back off the other two guys. I made them go away, and uh, we go into oh, business together. No, no, together. no, no, you don't get to gloss over that, Mister Franzisi. <laughs> um, no. Is this is this one of those things like the movie script? We made some suggestions, you know. So, how does one how does one who is a made member of the Colombo crime family get another crime family to back off? Well, they were, uh, you know, they weren't that high up in the family. Uh, they were two associates. So I told them, get lost. This guy's with me and you're out of here and you're out of your territory. Anyhow, this is Long Island. You don't belong here. But then they they went to their guy and I had to sit down with him. And they said, hey, you know, we were there first. They said, no, you weren't. I said, you weren't there. These two guys were there. And anyway, long story short, I backed them off. They're still well, alive. No, 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 no. This no, is the great part. This <laughs> is part of it. Cause that's one thing I was going to ask you about too. You've walked right into my trap again. I'm always interested in the sit down, right? So how does one go about arranging a sit down with a, a competing crime family? Like, like in this case, how did you arrange a sit down with this guy and what, what goes on in a sit down? Are there ground rules? Do you have an agenda? You know, uh, do they serve donuts and coffee? I mean, you know, what, what goes on? Well, it's uh, actually in this particular case, they reached out to me, this guy, and he said, I need to see you. So I go and see him. He was a made guy in, in another family. And we sit down and he says, listen, you know, those but, two but guys. Hold on. You get to the meeting, you're missing all the good stuff. How does the, how does you got to have security, right? People have to protect you, right? How was all of that stuff handled before you two made guys walk in and actually sit down and have your tay-to-tay? Well, we met in a restaurant that we were comfortable with, you know, and we went we met in a, in a not the back room, but a back table where we were alone. And I said, well, you know, what is it that you want? And so now this is a formal sit down now, even though, you know, we don't have any formalities. This the sit down is um, so oh, in this particular case, I didn't know this guy. So somebody that knew us both, another made guy that knew us both had to be there to introduce us as made guys, because you can't just go up to another made guy and say, hey, how are you? I'm made with the Columbos and you're no. Somebody that knows you both has to introduce us formally. So they go, Michael Amiga Nostra, which means a friend of ours, Sammy or whatever the name is. And now that we're introduced as made guys, then we can formally sit down and have a discussion. And this is a sit down. And then I said, you know, state your case. Well, what is it that you want? And he tells me the two guys that I chased away were with him. And I basically said, so what? You know, this guy, Larry, is with me. He's been on Long Island. I know him a long time. I made it up. I said, and he's been around me a long time, and you guys can't extort him. So long story short, you know, I I won the, I backed him off. He didn't want to get involved. I said, if you want to take this upstairs and we'll go to the boss, let's go. Because I knew that I would win this argument. So, so- he, he went away. It, and was it just through persuade? I mean, were there threats involved, like, or was it just simply business persuasion? Yeah, it was. In, in that case, it was business persuasion. You don't threaten one another at a sit down. You're not allowed to do that. We have certain things. You're not allowed to raise your voice. You're not allowed to call the other made guy a name. You can't be disrespectful. Another made guy could be sitting there lying through his teeth. If I call him a liar, I'm wrong. I can't do that. I have to figure out a way to you know, to expose him rather than 
be in his face and call him a liar. Um, these are very respectful meetings. So, and you got to keep your composure. So um, I guess in this thing, I guess I, I just out finessed him or whatever it might be, but he backed off. I said, there's, you know, there's, there's, you got to back off of here. So when you said, if we can take it up to the boss, how does that work then? If you guys don't handle it at your level, then how do the bosses handle it? Well, we, we have the same sit down and we uh, both state our case and the boss makes a decision and that's it. Whatever he says, that's final. Now, now is the boss, is the boss, the boss of your family or of his family? Well, both, both of them. I mean, if it gets, if it gets to that level, it's pretty intense. You don't want it to get to that level. I mean, it's got to be That's something very important. That's what I was just about important. to ask you. Your boss is going to look at you and say, why aren't you handling this down at your level? Why are you bringing it up to me? Exactly. Right? Well, I was only, a, uh, if I remember, I was a soldier at that time. I wasn't even a captain. So, um, and so was he. Because if he was a captain, I couldn't sit with him unless I had my captain there. So we were both soldiers. And he knew that, you know, I had a little bit more juice than he did on the, on the island and that uh, he was out of his territory. That's not where he was supposed to be. So I, I think he realized it. And I ended up nicely. I said, you know, look, you want to argue about this thing and you're going to lose anyway. So why don't you just let it go? Maybe we'll meet up at another time and we can do something together. And that's how we left it. So they were gone. And now we go into business. So I'll tell you exactly how it happened. I told Larry, this is the guy that came to me. I said, look, I want to start a new company because I don't know if you owe taxes or whatever. I don't want to get involved in that. We're going to start fresh, a new company. and. Um, it was devising a scheme to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. That was it, plain and simple. And initially, this was done at the gas station level. So I have a guy around me by the name of Vinny. He was my butcher, right? He was a big guy, had a big scar across his head. And I said, Vinny, I want to put you next to Larry. I want to make sure that this guy is doing the right thing. Let's see what he's got. Because I didn't really know, right? So but Vinny used to come to my house on a Saturday morning. He used to bring me meat you know, for the weekend, right? Or for the week, whatever it was. So he comes one Saturday morning, he knocks on the door and he's got a box on his shoulder. And I said, hey, what are we having a party? What's all this meat? You know, you know, I don't know about this. He said, no, boss, come into the kitchen. So I go in the kitchen, he puts the box down on the table and he says, it ain't meat. This is the first week's take in the gas business. And he opens up the box. It smelled like gasoline. All the cash was $320,000. And what did you do? Well, he got my attention at that point. Let me tell you. Right. <laughs> Just don't strike a match. No, I didn't care what Holy it smelled God. like. It was money. And uh, and quite honestly, over the next seven years, I grew that into uh, we were doing between eight and ten million dollars a week. We were selling a half wow. a billion gallons of gas a month. How did so? How did it work? How did you? How did you avoid paying the tax, but at the same time avoid the government finding out you're avoiding paying the tax? Well, the government had no clue. What we, it was a very sophisticated operation, and I had 18 Panamanian companies that were licensed to collect tax on every gallon of gasoline. Initially, they collected it at the gas station level, and we had over 350 gas stations we either owned or operated, and then the government changed it. And they made it, you had to be a wholesaler with a license to collect the tax, and then you were responsible to pay it to the government. But their, uh, their collection procedures were very sloppy. They were very antiquated. We had about 10 months before they would come down on us and knock down the door and say, we want our money. 10 months. We were able to hold them off for 10 months. So every time after that 10 to 11 month period happened, we would just close that company and open up under another license you know, across the street or uh, 10 miles away. And we did this for seven years. 
And there was a time, you know, th- this is funny. The FBI came to my office. I had my dealership, one of them in Long Island, and they said, we want to talk to you. So I go outside and they say, listen, we know what you're doing. We just don't know how you're doing it. You got to tell us. And when you do, it'll be between us. We'll give you a pass. I said, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> oh, look, even I got that one figured <laughs> Thank out. You. Yeah, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. Yeah. And I said, guys, let me tell you, I, I don't know what you, you want to buy a car? I'll give you a car for cheap. I said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> help me again. help you. What do I yeah. have to do to put you into a car today? Yeah. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, and they got very upset with me. They said, you're not going to help us. Blah, 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 blah. And they started getting really angry with me. I why, said, I'm, I'm sorry. Look, I, I love my brothers and sisters in the FBI and stuff, but why the hell would a guy who is in the Colombo crime family making millions of dollars, tell the FBI how he's doing it. I mean, exactly how stupid did they think you were? Well, I, pretty stupid, I think, if if they thought that I would cooperate with them at that point. And I said, you know, so they, they said, well, there's going to be a bullseye on your back, a bullseye on my back now. It's been there for where you guys been? I said, <laughs> I said it's been there for quite the some time. Here. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so they couldn't figure it out. They just really couldn't. Um, you know, and, and we operated until my partner became an informant. He got in trouble on an unrelated case on his own. And he started cooperating immediately against me because I was the guy they wanted at the time. That's that's how they found out. He gave them the whole scheme. If it wasn't for that, they didn't know what we were doing. And when we were reading up on this, there's uh, I read one thing that said the Russian you, you cooperate or you went in cahoots with the Russian mafia. Is that true? Yeah. What, what happened, there was a couple of Russians that were involved, you know, family guys and uh, they they couldn't collect a debt, believe it or not. It was like $7,000. So one of my guys came to me and said, Mike, I met with these Russian guys. They have a, a, a chain of gas stations called Gas Stop in Brooklyn, and they're having trouble collecting money. I said, let me meet them, you know, because I knew what I had going on. I said, if they have a chain of gas stations, we could do some business. So I go and meet them. And uh, yeah, it was a $7,000 debt they were having trouble collecting, believe it or not. So we collected the money for them. And I said, look, I said, you guys want to make some real money? Now, they knew about the tax scam. They just couldn't get licensed, and they, they didn't know how to do it. So I said, I'm going to bring you into my uh, operation. And I'll never forget, you know, uh, I, I said, here's the split. And they said, what? I said, 75% us, me, 25% you. So there was three of them, right? I'll never forget, we're in their offices, and they kind of huddled together, and they come back, and they said, Mr. Michael, we don't see that as being very fair. Why is it, you know, 75U, 25 I said, no, that's very fair. And they said, why? I said, because we're on the street. You're going to try to rob me. I said, this way, if you rob me, I'm not going to be so mad because I already collected more money. I said, but don't let me catch you. <laughs> I told them just like that. And they turned around. It was so funny. They turned around. They said, okay, you got a deal. <laughs> really? Yeah. So they basically admitted, okay, we're going to play some games. But who cared at that point? There was so much money coming in. How and much I, would you have? How much would you have settled for if they pushed back and negotiated with you? What were you comfortable giving them? Oh, nothing. Seventy-five percent. That was the deal because they needed me. They, they couldn't do, and I was going to increase their income by a hundredfold. That twenty-five percent would have been worth twenty-five percent of a hundred million is worth more than fifty percent of a million. Oh so. yeah, and, and and plus I knew that they were going to play some games with it, and I didn't care at that point because we were we were going to get ours. There was no way they could have beaten uh, beat us out of the main money that we were going to get. So because we had that system down pat, because they everything they bought had to come through us. So. They could have made some little side deals where, you know, they were making money on the side from that, but they couldn't, have, it wouldn't have been a lot. 
So when, when Vinny the Butcher brought you that first box of $320,000, what do you do with it? How are you laundering your money? Well, you know, uh, $320,000 was not too bad. You could spend that kind of cash, you know, with everything that I had going on. But <laughs> Oh, it, yeah, it, me it, on a weekend. Yeah, hit me a Tommy <laughs> Bahama store, man. I blow through a couple hundred K. <laughs> I mean, it it became complicated when we had millions coming in. That's when we had to set up. I mean, we were sending money overseas. I had bank accounts in Austria and the Cayman Islands. Um, And we had. How did you keep track of that stuff? Because you you can't keep track of all those bank accounts unless you got an eidetic memory. I mean, how do you now track, start tracking all of your corporations and your bank accounts? Well, we had had our, you know, I had an accounting team at that point in time with one of them that I really trusted. And I had the bank records, you know, we had them, we, we put them away in a secure place. And so nobody would get them, not in my house. That would be the last place, you know? So we had them in a secure place. I'll tell you what, I, I actually bought a house undercover with somebody else's name that I never went to, never went to, uh, except for one time. And that one time I put a safe in the ground. I did it myself so that nobody else knew about it, covered it up. And, um, you know, this person I trusted very much. And that's where the money would, would go when I had extra cash. And, you know, we had a lot of cash at that time. But I never went to the house. They could never trace it to me. And this was a relative of mine, very close. So I, I didn't worry about anything. How uh, big was that safe? It was big. I mean, <laughs> it was a big in-ground safe. Um, wow. And it, it held a lot of money. Well, about the I mean, size of your in-ground pool, Murph. <laughs> Not that that's big. That's pretty but, small. But it was big. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, this, it was, I mean, this is so cool because, uh, you know, We've talked to other people that have been involved in this kind of stuff, but not to this not detail. To this level. I'm loving what we're hearing here. Or this level. I mean, it's like we, right. we talked with a guy named uh, Ken Rijok, who was the original one of the bolt cash money launderers, and he was having to physically carry money down. But I'll tell you one person, and there's a name, uh, you may not know the name, Luis Navia. He was on one of our episodes. He was a guy, came out of Cuba, but was living in New York. And uh, But he ended up doing a lot of work for the cartels. He got pop coming out of Venezuela, 26 tons of cocaine. This guy had been worked across everything. But, you know, growing up, you know who his father did business with? His father was legitimate, but did business? Meyer Lansky. Oh, really? <laughs> he grew up and met Meyer Lansky. I'm telling you, yes, Lansky really got around, man. That guy, uh, you got to give him a lot of credit because so many things that I've heard, people have that, uh, and I believe they're legit, that have told me they they were involved with him in some way. Or, uh, you know, that he was able to help them or benefit them in some way. It's unbelievable. You know, it's funny because Javier and I were out at the Mob Museum in Vegas uh, a couple months ago. And we spoke there and the uh, it was the end of CrimeCon and the organizer of CrimeCon invited us to come in for the evening and a uh, little VIP thing. And we met Meyer Lansky, the, I don't know, the sixth the third, or whatever. Yeah, I, I know him. I know, you know him well. Him? Oh, yeah. He's a nice guy. Nice guy. And he's made a business out of talking about his his grandfather. Absolutely. I had a I had a stage show in uh, in Vegas for six months. We had a six month run. I called it a mob story. And Meyer used to come there all the time. He loved sitting in there because it was it was the history of Las Vegas set to music and dance. And he loved it, man. He was he was there all the time. And uh, um, just a really good guy. I actually interviewed him on my on my uh, YouTube channel. Well, we'll have we're going to get into that, too, because you got a crushing YouTube channel, man. I love the way you Mm -hmm. do it. Um, Thank you. But let's let's talk about this because this was kind of the, be- the 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 gasoline tax scam and this guy informing on you. I don't want to say it was the beginning of the end, but that's kind of was one of the first big um, changes in your success, right? I mean, in, in terms of like now your biggest money maker, the thing that the family was getting a cut of. I mean, how much money were you bringing in a week to the Colombo crime family? 
Well, I'll tell you how what happened. When I realized what I had, Morgan, I went to my boss at the time and um, I said, look, I hit upon something. I'm going to show you more money than you've ever seen before. And he looked at me and he said, we don't do drugs. And I said, Junior, it's not drugs. I said, it's gas. And he like, what do you mean? And I explained to him what I was doing. I said, but Junior, here's the deal. I said, everybody's going to want to get into this. When this gets out on the street, they're all going to want a piece of it. I said, you can't let that happen because, you know, too many people get involved. We're going to blow it. I said, you got to protect me. Every time we sit down and somebody tries to get involved, I got to win. You got to make me win. I said, no politics. I said, I got to come out on top. I will show you more money. I said, trust me. Now, I was already an earner. So he looked at me and he said, show me. That was it, right? So within within a month of that conversation, or let me within within two months of that conversation, I brought him two million dollars, and he said, "What's this?" I said, "That's your end." I said, "And you can expect that uh, on a monthly basis," and then pretty soon that came in on a weekly basis because we started making so much money. So that bought a lot of loyalty. I never lost an argument. And I had, you know, John Gotti come at me, you know, I had, I had so many guys come at me uh, because they wanted to get involved. And some of them had legitimate businesses. When I say le- they were legitimate illegal gas business operations because they were now smelling this and they would get involved with other guys, some of the Jewish guys, some of the Russian guys. And, but they would come to me for credit, you know, to, provide them or supply them with gas because I bought a terminal out in uh, in Long Island from British British Petroleum and we had a big storage unit there. We had three million, I think it was three million tank uh, gallon capacity. Plus I was buying barges as they came over from the Middle East. That's where we were getting our gas, right? And I was buying them from all the major oil companies, Shell Oil, Mobile Oil, BP. We were buying them from everybody. I didn't care. Our money was good. And, um, and so, you know, I said to them, I'll give you credit, but I got to get paid. So I, because you have gas, it's like having money. Gas, you turn it around the next day for dollars. It's the same thing, right? So I told Junior, I said, look, we can get beat here. If I extend credit, you got to make sure we get paid. And he did, you know, so I had a lot of support because of the money that I was bringing in at that point in time. And they really protected that operation. And there was other guys doing it, but nobody did it as well as we did because we had it down pat. And my guy was a genius. I have to say this. He was he knew the ins and outs. And and I was able to help him with certain things that he couldn't figure out. It was a very good combination at the time. But he he was he was very, very smart. And we put the right people in place to operate this right. We operated it like a business. Yeah. Well, but the wow. here's the other thing, though, too, is um, you went from a point of where you didn't have enough money you know, to go out and buy dinner. Now you've got more money than you've ever seen before. I mean, you've got this, there's got to be an urge to live it up. There's got to be an urge to have a lifestyle that comports with the kind of income that you've got coming in. And with that comes a feeling of power. It's like, man, I've got this money. I've got this power. I am somebody now. Did that get to you? Did you, did you fall victim to that? And if not, how did you, how did you guard against from getting too flashy? Like, you know, one of the knocks against Gotti is, um, he just, he was, too public. He was too flashy. He brought too much attention to a business that would otherwise, you know, be secret. Like you say, be, you know, be behind the curtain. Well, look, you know, in John's case, I think one of the mistakes he made is that he thumbed his nose in the face of the government. And he was very arrogant, even on the tape recordings that uh, they picked up on him. So he had an arrogance about him. 
that I think really worked against him in a big way. And, you know, I was, I wasn't flashy like that, that I dressed the part and I walked around, you know, in, in that way. Uh, but I, I had legitimate business. So I was able to buy things. I mean, I paid taxes at the time. I was able to, you know, I had a house in, in Long Island that was 7,000 square feet on two acres of land. I paid a million dollars. I built it from the ground up, but I had an income to support that. You know, um, what we bought out of the company, I bought a jet plane. We had a Lear 25A. I bought a Bell helicopter. The helicopter was a great resource because we would go to a lot of gas stations to pick up cash and the government couldn't track us. They couldn't follow us. Because we're in the, we're in the air, you know. And Plus, helicopter. it's easy to talk in there. Don't worry about being bugged when you got the helicopter going, man. We didn't have to worry about that. And then, you know, I bought a house in Florida uh, on the water. I had a boat in the backyard. I bought a house in uh, in California, and I had my house in New York. So, I mean, I had those kind of extravagances, but it, it wasn't to say f you to the government. I wasn't doing that. I was just enjoying the fruits of my labor. So was it the smartest thing in the world to do? Probably not. But I don't I don't know that the government resented my lifestyle, you know, like they did with Gotti. Uh, I was just they knew I was a criminal and they were coming after me and I was a high profile guy. And, and that means a lot to them also. You know, you know that. So um, but yeah, I mean, I was making the money. I may as well enjoy it. You know, somebody came to me once and they said to me, Michael, you got all this money now. How long do you think this could last? And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to go down at some point. I said, this can't last forever. But I said, listen, you get as much jail time for a million dollars as you do for a billion. So why should That's I give it up? That's what they say about bank robbery. If you're going <laughs> to rob a bank, man, you go to jail for five grand or, you know, 50 million. Just... Yeah, that, that was my mentality. Because I said, do you think if I stop now, like it's all going to go away and nobody's ever going to know about it? I said, no, that's not going to happen. So I so, may as well get as much as I can. You said something interesting. What at what point did it dawn on you, or did you resolve yourself to say, "Look, I know I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna get uh, not just indicted, but this time it's gonna stick." It's like with the Teflon Don, you know, they're they're gonna make it stick this time. I'm gonna I'm gonna get brought down. Did you ever believe it was gonna be through the gas uh, scam? Well, here's here's what happened to me, and it was fortunate and, and unfortunate. Rudy Giuliani indicted me on a big racketeering case. And I was a lead defendant. I had 15 co-defendants. It was a huge case. I was one of the first major mob guys he indicted under that statute. I go to trial. At, in the meantime, my partner gets caught, becomes an informant. He testifies against me in the Giuliani case. Now, he was really the gas guy, but he testified against me in the Giuliani case. He didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Boom, jury gets back, comes back. I get acquitted. That was my fifth acquittal or dismissal. Five. So the government had, had, had missed me five times. So now he's the principal witness in the next case, the gas case, that they're building on me. Well, we just destroyed him on the witness stand. His value went from here all the way down. So now I tell my lawyer, I said, listen, eventually I'm going down. If they convict me on this case, I'm going to get 100 years. That's the kind of time they were giving guys back then. I said, now's the time for, ripe for me to make a deal. Let me negotiate. Let me see if I can wrap everything up they have against me or they don't have and try to make a deal. Well, they wanted that. If this guy didn't, if, if Giuliani's case had ended differently and he was a credible witness, they would have never negotiated with me. But I had leverage. So I go in and we negotiate. Ten-year prison sentence, $15 million restitution, $5 million in forfeitures. I gave up the plane, the helicopter, the whole bit. But remember, at that point in time, I met this young girl 
that I knew I was going to marry. And I said, I'm going to try to make a different life for myself because I realized that we were in a lot of trouble. I realized that racketeering law was crippling people. Guys were turning informant left and right. I said, it's only a matter of time before we're, I'm going to go down. I may as well try to cut my losses. So that's my whole mentality at that point in time. Yeah, let's let's back up a little bit though. Um, when did you start having those thoughts in your head? Is that hey, look, I got to cut a deal? Was it was it during the indictment or was it before that? Did you because you you seem to me like somebody who thinks things through, like on a chessboard, a chess piece. You're not just a you know fly by the seat of your pants. Mm-hmm. I've got to think you had been thinking some strategies through this. At what point did you realize I'm going to have to take a plea deal if I'm going to avoid like you say a hundred years? Was it was it at the height? Because a lot of times people forget. The best time to get out is when you're on top. You know, ask Brett Favre, man. <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want to hang it out there too long, right? But you were on top, right? Is that when you decided you needed to get out, or did it take uh, like getting indicted and getting acquitted for you to go? Now nah, they're going to eventually get me. After the Giuliani case, and I and I beat that case, uh, and a lot of effort into that. I mean, when I say beat it, I worked twenty four seven to to you know, defend myself with my attorneys and my, uh, my investigator at the time. And then we were on trial for several months. I mean, this was a year and a half, almost two years out of my life defending this. Um, and then when they locked me up on the new case in the Eastern District of New York, the new racketeering case, um, I said, I'm in MDC. They gave me no bail, even though I never was a flight risk. I, there was no violence alleged in this case, but they called me an economic danger to the community. And based upon that, I got no bail. It was the first time they ever used that. Economic I've never danger. heard of that. Yeah, economic. <laughs> Nobody heard, else yeah. did either. And my hmm. lawyer was, what, what is that? You know, but the judge went along with it. And so they locked me up with no bail. And I'm in MDC with everybody getting indicted. They're going to trial. They're coming back 50 years, 80 years, 100 years. I was the youngest out of all of these guys. I said, they're going to give me 200 years. I said, this is we're in trouble. That's when the light went on. And I grabbed my lawyer and I said, we got to make a deal here. I said, I beat them in Giuliani. Uh, we destroyed their major witness. Now's the time to try to approach them. And that's how it happened. Well, you said you met a young lady. When? I met her in 1984. I uh, was filming a movie. Actually, it was late 83. I was filming a movie in South Florida. I, was, I had a production company. She was one of the dancers on the film. And she was a young Christian girl. And, you know, without getting into all the detail, I fell in love with her. And, um, you know, she was from Anaheim, California. And I said that, I mean, that played heavily into my thinking because I said, look, what am I going to do? Marry this girl and then go away forever and destroy her life? and destroy a family like my family was destroyed. I said, I, I have to make a choice. So all of these things played into my head. You know, and I, I told, I spoke to Rudy afterwards, you know, uh, after 30 years, I had a conversation with him. I said, Rudy, you have no idea what you did for me. You saved my life. He said, what do you mean? I said, if you didn't put that guy on the stand and we didn't destroy him, I would have never been able to uh, take a plea on the other. They wouldn't have given me a plea because they would have thought they had their greatest witness ever. And I might have got convicted because the gas business, he, he could have hurt me. There's no doubt. Um, so Rudy said, well, I'm glad you, I'm glad I helped you out. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, so all those things came into play, you know, and I just said, listen, I'm going to go to jail eventually. Let me try to cut my losses and try to preserve a life with this young girl. Because if I can minimize, they started out with a $100 million fine and 25 years in prison. 
And I told him, I may as well go to trial for that. Forget it. I'm not doing that. And we just kept negotiating until we got him down to where it was manageable. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have a sit down with the U.S. attorneys? <laughs> I actually did. Uh, you know, we, we, we sat and talked. Did you go to a restaurant and sit at the back and no, get informally introduced? Yeah, these are a little bit different. It wasn't that, it wasn't that comfortable. <laughs> it was in their selected location in handcuffs, but uh, yeah. it wasn't that comfortable. But um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you know, you know, they confiscated the film. They confiscated the film as part of uh, the the indictment that I was doing because they said you financed that film with gas money, and I said, "Well, so what?" I said, "What are you going to do with it?" I said, "It's a completed film. Let's sell it. You could take some of the money, and I'll take some." You know, <laughs> already still, still working deals. Yeah, and they agree. <laughs> but what would have been the percentage? Seventy five for me and twenty five for them. Right? I, I didn't care what it was. I said it's part of my restitution. You could keep it, but if you don't give it to me back to put it out there, what are you going to do with it? They're just cans of film. And they gave it back to me, you know, and we, and we, uh, uh, we produced the film and we, we put it out in, in the theaters. Wow. Yeah. What's the name of it? It was called Knights of the City. Knights of the City, yeah. Like it's, K-N-I-G-H-T yeah, or K-N-I? Yeah, K-N-I. Sammy, the- it was uh, Sammy Davis Jr., Leon Kennedy. Uh, no kid. Yeah, yeah. Wow. If, I mean, if they would have, I mean, I went to jail before it was edited. If I was out on the street, I'd have been able to do a better job. But the film made money, made some money, and uh, we had a good soundtrack. and. Uh, government got some money out of it, and that was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, there's some, you're just dropping names. So, yeah, Sammy Davis Jr. I'm thinking of the Rat Pack, you know, and I'm, you were yeah, talking I'm about where's, Las Vegas. Where's, yeah. where's Dean Martin? Or where's Dean? <laughs> well, Sammy, Sammy did me a favor. It was a gang-like film where he was, uh, you know, an old gangster that was actually uh, trying to counsel some of these young guys on the street. And uh, he, he didn't have, uh, he wouldn't take any money from me. Cause I knew him for a long time. So I gave him a gold watch, you know, he's into the bling and stuff. He was such a nice guy. I mean, I really liked him. I gave him a gold watch and I'll tell you what happened when I went into prison, we gave it up to, uh, I, I sold it to a company called new world at the time. And they had a different vision of the film and they cut Sammy out of the film. They cut him out. You imagine cutting Sammy, these idiots. I'm sorry, cut Sammy Davis. So I'm in jail and I called Sammy and I said, Sammy, I feel so bad. You know, I don't even know what to say. He said, Michael, you're calling me from jail. You think I'm worried about this film? Don't worry about it. You know, he was so he was so nice about it, you know. And then when I got out, you know, I I, I, uh, I was so mad at the guy that, well, never mind. That didn't, I said, how could you cut Sammy Davis out of the movie? You nut job? <laughs> all I, I want to know, is this guy still alive? He's still, is he still alive? Well, he might be dead now, but not by natural causes, because he was older at the time. Of course, but. everything is natural causes. Just ask the Russians. He has natural causes. He fell off of a seven-story building. Yeah. Uh, gravity is natural. See, so it's natural causes. Um, so how long did it take you to come to terms and say, yeah, I'll take the deal? Did you just sign right away, or did it, the impact of it hit you and you say, look— uh, because there's there's a follow-on to this I want to ask you about the life, but did it take you a long time to, to sign that once was in front of you, or you're like, no, I'm ready for this, I'm going to do it? Once once it got down to the 10 years, and the, uh, you know, my lawyer was smart at that time, because uh, they said, they said, we're going to give him a $100 million fine, because they alleged that we stole $2 billion. And I told the lawyer, I said, I don't care if it's $100 million, I'm not going to pay them anyway, let them get a judgment, right? And he said to me, Michael, you're a business guy. You're going to have a life when you get out of prison. We're not going to settle for that. Let me work it down. And he worked it down to $14.7 million, um, which he was smart. I wasn't at that point, so I'm glad I listened to him. Um, but it was the amount of jail time that I really cared about. 
When we got it down to 10, I was under the old law. So they still had parole at that time. So I said, okay, maybe I can do five on this. It's manageable. Uh, I negotiated to where I could keep my house. Um, my wife had enough money so that uh, she wouldn't have to work during that time. I could take care of her. So in, in the negotiation, I stipulated to all of these things. And they went along with a lot of it. And plus, I said, anything that you guys have pending, known or unknown, I, I want immunity from, from this point on. And they agreed to all of that, except for murder. There was no immunity for murder if there was, a, uh, you know, if they happened to come across something like that. But I wasn't worried about that. So when I got all of that, I signed the deal because I said, 10 years is the best I'm going to get. They're not going to go any lower than that. And I talked to my wife at the time and I said, listen, you're going to be comfortable. I'm going to try to get in the plea agreement that they send me to a prison out in California. I eventually got out to Terminal Island, which was 40 minutes from my house. So we were able to visit, you know, three, four days a week at that time. It was good. I could keep, you know, maintain control of my, my family. And it was the best deal. I mean, when, when people knew I had and there was no cooperation involved, none. It was just a straight deal. And when guys on the inside heard I got that deal, they were congratulating me. Hey, don't even take your shoes off. Ten years, what a score. They would pat me on the back. They said, Mike, uh, you know, who's your lawyer? You know, we want him to do the same for us. You know, I <laughs> Not got the guy who represented me the last time. Yeah. yeah. And and believe me, it was it was an absolute blessing, believe it or not, to get to get that all hammered out. But again, the only reason I got it is because I was such a target and they wanted some jail time. And they figured, hey, you're going to come out and be now you'll have a conviction and you're going to get in trouble again and we'll put you away forever the next time. That was their thinking of it. No doubt. They never I never told anybody, even though I had it in my mind, I'm trying to make a break. I'm going to move out to California. When I get out on parole, I'm going to use that as an excuse. I can't meet with anybody. And I figured maybe after 10 or 12 years, they forget about me. That was my plan, but I didn't tell anybody that. I was already planning to get away. I wasn't coming back. Well, that's the next question. How does you got into this life? How does one get out of this life right. and still have their life? Morgan, I, I got to tell you this, you know, and uh, it, there's no blueprint for walking away from that life. I didn't know if it was going to work out. I never sold my former associates short. I knew they were very capable. But there's a couple, there's two things that I was confident in. Number one, I said, I know that life extremely well. I know what the guys will do. I know what they wouldn't do. One of the horrors of that life, and I really mean this, is that you make a mistake. Your best friend walks you into a room. You don't walk out again. And over my 20 years, obviously, I've seen that happen to people. So I said, they're not going to walk me into any room. They're going to have to work to get me. So what do I do? I move out to California. There's no big crews out there, number one. Number two. I don't create any patterns in my life. I never went to the same restaurant on a Tuesday night. I never walked my dog at seven o'clock in the morning. I stayed out of clubs and places that I knew other guys hung out in. I was very disciplined in that regard because again, I didn't sell them short. And, and then when everybody thought, you know, there was a lot of press that I walked away, they thought I was gonna start testifying against people because that was the word on the street and the FBI put it out there. They put it out that I was going to become a, a witness. I know that for a fact. So I was telling my father through the, I'm not hurting anybody, but nobody believed me. So I had a lot of trouble at that point. But then what happened over a period of time, everybody had their own troubles. I wasn't coming in to testify 
who's going to jail for 100 years, 50 years, 20 years, who's dying, who's this? I just outlasted everybody. The bottom line, I, I, that's what happened because I never hurt anybody. And then they were doing their own thing. And most of the guys were going to prison. We have a war in our family in 91 to 94. 13 guys got killed. Another 63 guys went to jail. I think 18 guys became informants. So I was the last person that they had to be concerned with at that point. The, the whole family was in disarray. So I just caught a break all the way through, you know. And then the one thing that happened that was very telling, and this is where how I know God has intervened in my life in many ways. Just before 91, when the family was going to war, I got a call from my dad. I was out on parole. And he said to me, uh, I'd done five years. I, I made parole. He said to me, the family's going to war. We need you back here. You need to stop this and get back here. It's serious. Well, Morgan and, and, and Murph, I was so torn at that point in time. I really was. I said, man, what kind of guy am I? I'm leaving my guys stranded. I'm, I'm betraying my oath. It really, really, really got to me intensely at that point. And I almost make a decision to violate my parole and go back to New York. I was that, you know, How close were you challenged. to doing that? Very close. Very Wh close. Which means you have a ticket, you're headed out that way, no, packing clothes? I, no, I didn't have a ticket. I was, I was wondering, I was going to lie to my wife and tell her I had to go to New York for some reason because uh, I was out in California. But let me tell you what happened. This was November 13th. 19, I'm sorry, November 7th, 1991. No, I'm sorry. I'm getting it mixed up. November 13th, 1991. I'm in Brentwood, California. I'm in a bank. I walk out of the bank and there's 15 agents there. They locked me up, violated my parole, uh, threw me back in the hole. And I did another four years in prison, almost four years. And I was in prison throughout the whole war. What did you, how did they, what did they say you did to violate parole? Well, they, they were very, honestly, and you know, people can believe this or not. They were upset that I wouldn't cooperate. That was the bottom line. They nitpicked with nonsense. They said I didn't file my tax returns uh, and I defrauded somebody, they said, which was total nonsense. They were just getting even with me. And uh, when we went in front of the judge, we said, Your Honor, Mr. Francis, every month fills out a, a a financial statement with his parole officer. The only reason he didn't file was because the government was claiming that he, you know, he might have had a fraudulent filing, so he was being certain. But he was filing his reports every month, which I was. And uh, the judge says, "Well, that's that's very nice of you, but you're supposed to file your income tax." And he and he violates me, right? Gives me a four years, which was the maximum. But you know. If they would have indicted me for non-filing of my income tax, it was only a misdemeanor. You can only get a year. So I got I got four times the amount, to, you know, for whatever. But anyway, when I look back, it, it in many ways, it saved my life. So, you know, I believe God intervened at that point in time and, and put me back in a hole. Now, I spent 29 months and seven days in solitary. So not only did they violate me, but they kept me in solitary. Why solitary? I mean, wow. what kind of a threat were you that you needed solitary? I was no threat, but they claimed it was administrative detention that my life was in danger. So they were protecting me by keeping me in solitary, which was total nonsense. I would write the warden every day and I said, warden, I'm not afraid to be out on the yard. There's no mob guys here. I didn't testify against anybody. Let me out. But they just ignored it. They ignored For two and a half years. Wow. That's a, you know. 
You know, and, I, and I'm just thinking here, our, our listeners are probably thinking, whoa, you guys are feeling sorry for, for a made man who's, you know, admittedly a criminal. Um, we're not into a true law enforcement. You still have to treat people in accordance with the law and with respect. We're not condoning the things that Michael did here. We're happy to have him on the show because he's atoned for what he did. He took his punishment. Uh, he's survived the war you know, through, through divine intervention. I agree with you hundred percent on that and probably saved your marriage as well. Cause if you've gone back to New York, I'm pretty sure your wife's going to end Good things you. with you there. So, uh, we are certainly not, uh, you know, I mean, we're honored to have you on here. We're not condoning the lifestyle and I don't think you condone the lifestyle. In fact, I've read where you've denounced it and I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to that here in just a few minutes. Yeah, no. Well said, Morphin. Thank you for that. No, look, I've told everybody it's it's I call the mob life, the street life an evil lifestyle. And I want to be clear on that. I'm not calling the guys evil. I was one of them. I just happen to be very blessed to be where I am now. Uh, but I don't know any family of any member of that life that hasn't been totally devastated, including my own. Now, not my wife and kids. Thank God I've been able to spare them. But, you know, my mother was 33 years without a husband. When she passed away in 2012, I can only say that her relationship with my father was ugly because she blamed him for everything that went wrong, and rightfully so. My sister dies at the age of 27 of an overdose of drugs. My brother's a drug addict, 25 years, got himself in trouble, cooperated with the government, and put my father back in jail, both on a parole violation and a new case. He testified against him. My younger brother destroyed his life. Uh, my younger sister, 42 years old, died of cancer. She was a basket case, that kid. She was not ever emotionally stable. You know, so, and every family of every member of that life that I know, similar mess. So any lifestyle that does that to a family is a bad, evil lifestyle. And that's how I look at it. And I never glorify that life. Yes, I'm honest about it. There were times when I enjoyed being in it. and I, I benefited from it at times. But I've rejected and renounced it because it's not what it's cracked up to be in plain English. And and people and I've been speaking out against it. I, and I want to be clear. I don't talk about the guys. I don't see any uh, benefit or anything noble about bad mouthing people in that life. I just don't see it. Everybody's got their own troubles, their own reasons for doing things. And I always said, I'm not going to make a name for myself by bad mouthing others. I didn't leave that life because the life mistreated me. I left the life because I knew that it was in trouble and it was wrong and I had to get out of it. So I'm not mad at anybody. I didn't say these guys treated me poorly, even though, honestly, I was walked into a room one night that I didn't think I was going to walk out of. And it was very scary. And I knew why. It was political reasons and so on and so forth. But that's part of the life. You understand that. So I'm not saying, oh, these guys persecuted me. It's part of the life. I understood what was going on. Um, but I want to make that clear with your listeners. You know, I, uh, I I do not glorify that life, but neither will I talk bad about people. I don't think it's right. right. Well, right. there's a lot of things to pull out of this. You actually just mentioned something. I had the note written down here because I wanted to circle back to it, and we can do it right now. You were talking about there were times you said you had you knew friends were walked into a room and they didn't come out. What was it for you? What happened to you that got you set up like that? And just walk it, walk us through it when you think that, hey, this is it, man. This is the last uh, couple minutes of my life here. You know, there was a lot of talk on the street. I had a powerful crew. We were making a lot of money. 
I was one of the younger guys. There was a lot of talk on the street that I was getting, you know, really powerful. I had the Russians with me. Um, and there was an article, I think it was in Newsday, I don't remember exactly, that alluded to the fact that I was getting powerful enough to break away from the Columbos and start my own family. It was no truth to it. It wasn't even a thought in my mind. It was total fiction. Some guy dreamed it up. And uh, so guys get nervous with that. You know, my dad was still a powerful guy, uh, even though, you know, uh, you know, he was on parole. He still had a lot of juice. I was a captain at that point. I had a big crew. So it gets into people's heads. So one night, my dad calls me up. Uh, he was on parole, and he never went anywhere without me. I didn't have a record at the time, and he, I was the only one he could associate with without a record, believe it or not. So he calls me up, and he said, look, and I'll try to make this short because it's a long story. He says, we got to oh, No, go. no, no, don't. Don't cut out yeah. details. This is what people live for. Nobody, nobody's heard Absolutely. a story like this, so don't don't cut it short. Okay. Uh, ban, bandwidth is cheap, my friend. So is storage All right. space. All <laughs> right. Well, my dad says to me, "Look, we got to go see the boss. He uh, he wants to see us." And I said, "Okay. What time do you want me to pick you up?" We were in his driveway at his house. Uh, he said, "Well, they want to do this differently. They want you to come in first. They want me to come in second. I said, "Why?" I said, "No, we're not going to do that, Dad. We were both captains at that point. I said, "We're going to go together." I said, you know, there's been some, some talk on the street. Somebody had sent some people. So one of our guys, uh, you know, I assume it was the boss, sent people to talk to my Russian partners. And I said, you know, what's going on here? I said, we're going to go together. Why would we let them separate us? No, we got an order. We have to follow the order the way they want it. And I, first time I had an argument with my dad. I said, we're not going to do that. I said, let's go together. Long story short, after maybe 45 minutes of talking in his, his driveway, I said, you know what, Dad? I've been listening to you all my life. I don't like it, but I'm going to listen to you again. So I leave. I get a call from a guy by the name of Jimmy Angelina. He was another captain in the family. He said, Mike, meet me on such and such a place. It was a, it was a meeting at night, and uh, it was a covert meeting, obviously. The boss was on parole, so we had to drive around to make sure that we weren't being followed. So I park my car. I get into the car with Jimmy, who I knew my whole life. And there's a guy sitting behind me in the back seat that I recognize, but I didn't know him real well. So as we're driving around to go to this house in Brooklyn, we had to go to a house in Brooklyn. I'm waiting for Jimmy to tell me what's, what's going on. And he doesn't say anything. Right? He starts talking to me about the Yankees. Now, I'm a diehard Yankee fan, but I wasn't interested that night in the Yankees. I wanted him to prepare me what this meeting was about. He doesn't say anything. So after uh, uh, we drive around, we get to this house in Brooklyn. It was late at night and we parked the car and we had to go into a basement apartment. And I can tell you this, I get out of the car. It was a summer night. It was in August. I get out of the car. I'm assuming Jimmy walks behind me and the other guy behind him. Now I'm saying, what the heck is going on here? This is not a good setup, right? Because obviously I know this is not good. I, I can tell you this, when I relay this story, every time I have, I have a vision of this. I can hear the crickets and the lightning bugs. You know, we had lightning bugs in New York. I seen them. I can smell the flowers, the fragrance. It was so vivid in my mind. I said, man, I'm going to walk into this room. I'm going to get killed. I said, this is it. Something's bad here. And I was, was that the first, was that the first time? I mean, didn't you, you said you kind of had a feeling, that feeling talking with your dad. Did you think that that was even within the realm of possibility that you, the son of the underboss, would be targeted like this? No, I didn't. I didn't feel that way after our discussion until we got in the car and, and 
everything started to go south on me. So, uh, you know, I just figured if we were together, we could talk together. Why would you let them separate us? And if somebody makes a mistake or whatever. And plus, I thought it was very disrespectful to, to separate us. You know, I, I didn't like that. So anyway, um, I got, I'll be honest with you, my heart was like thumping out of my chest. My knees were getting weak. As we walked down the stairs, when that door opened, I mean, I knew the setup. You know, if I was going to go, they wouldn't wait. It would be fast. So the, I don't know how I didn't faint when the door opened, honestly. I was that scared. But um, obviously, I walk in, and, I, and, and you know, they wanted me to be scared. There's no doubt about it. Because when you're scared, you talk. And if there's anything out of the way, you talk. So now I sit down, and uh, they start drilling me. The boss and uh, the underboss was there, and, and they start drilling me about the gas and the money. It was mainly money. Because this article said that I, was ma- I brought $2 billion or something. And I, I started to get angry. I said, hey, I'm bringing you guys all this money. I'm taking all the risk. I don't ask you for anything other than to protect everybody's interest here. And I'm being put on the spot for it. So I started to get a little mad. And then I calmed myself down. I said, wait a minute. Uh, it looks like I'm going to walk out of here. I don't want to be disrespectful to the boss. I'll put me in, in trouble that I didn't have coming in, right? Why did you think you were going to walk out? I mean, simply because they I were continuing the way, to ask you yeah, questions? I, well, I would have been done, it would have been done immediately. Uh, okay. There was no talk. You don't have a conversation. If that's planned, it's done. That's it. You're done. So um, everything is done. It's good. Oh, Michael, blah, blah, blah. Have a cup of wine, a glass of wine, and everybody's hugging and it's all good. Honestly, I just wanted to get out of there. I was. I just wanted out. So I said, Jimmy, I said, great. I'm glad everybody's happy. Whatever I said, I said, Jimmy, drive me home. I said, I got to let me go. I got a long drive out to Long Island. And we get in the car and I knew Jimmy well. And I'm just about to really give him a piece of my mind. I turned to him and he says to me, Michael, wait, wait, before you say anything, wait. I said, what? He said, I got to be honest with you. I said, what? He said, you held yourself pretty good in there. He said, this could have been a problem for you. And I got even more mad. I said, you know me my whole life. I said, I could have walked into a a, a death trap there and you didn't tell me, you didn't inform me, you're a friend of mine. And he looked at me, he was smart. And he said, well, let me ask you this. If it was the other way around, would you have told me? And I just stopped and I thought about it for a second and I said, no. He said, hey, that's the life we live, Michael. He said, you grew up in it. You know it as well or better than anybody. And I just stopped to think for a minute, you know, and uh, I was, it, it gets to where my car is parked and I go to get out of the car. I hadn't said a word up to that point again. And he grabs me by my arm and he says, I'm going to tell you something. You're not going to like what I tell you, but take it to the bank. It's true. I said, what? He said, your father was in there before you tonight. He didn't help you one bit. He hurt you just like that. I was so stunned by that, I didn't know what to say. So I said, okay. And I got out of the car. And as I'm walking back to my car, I'm thinking, what could he have done? And knowing my father so well, I know exactly what he did. Instead of standing up for me and saying, my son would never steal, rob, you guys are crazy. Because he had a lot of juice, my dad. What he did was, hey, I don't know. I'm on parole. I don't know anything. If my son was taking money or doing something, I don't know. He, he just totally, in that way, threw me under the bus. I was shocked. But I never said anything to him. I just kept it under my head because in that life, you don't, you don't voice your grievances and, uh, until 
the right time or maybe never. But I will tell you this. As I'm walking away, I said, man, if this life can separate father and son, what do we really have here? So I will tell you this, guys, and I believe this. If that incident didn't happen, I don't know that I would have ever walked away from the life because I had just too much of a, a bond with my dad, and I didn't want him to ever think that I would be betraying anything. And uh, But I, I believe, you know, now as a person of faith that God had to use that incident to break that tie that I had with me and my dad, because it was very strong up until then. It was a tremendous bond. And, you know, I never told him this, but when I was writing my first book, I was waffling, should I put this in the book or not? Because I had never said anything to anybody. And I put it in the book. And that's where my dad heard it. He found out about it. And he called me. He was so mad about it. He, and we had a discussion. He says, Mike, do you believe this? And I said, Dad, I do. I said, as a matter of fact, I know what happened. I said, but it's okay. I'm not mad at you. I said, I get it. I says, in reality, you did me a favor. And we had a pretty heated discussion about it. And I said, Dad, I love you. I'm okay with it. It's okay. You did me a favor. You opened up my eyes to things in that life on how that life can be so detrimental to families. And I said, and, and that was part of my strong part of my decision to walk away. So I'm not mad. I'm happy about it. But he he was very upset. You know, it's funny. I'll tell you this the way that life is. Jimmy Angelina, the guy in the car, about three years later, they walked him into a room. He never walked out again. That's oh, the geez. fate that he met. So when I told my father that, uh, you know, he said, Jimmy lied to, he said, if, if Jimmy was still alive, I'd kill him again. That was his, that was his response to me, you know, a typical dad. But I mean, that's how serious that incident, that was a defining moment in my, in my life, no doubt. And what year was that? It was in, uh, it was just before I met my wife, uh, or I had just met her. I think I just met her. So it was like 83, 84. And, and he passed away, I think he said 21, 2021? In, in 2020. 20. Yeah. So were there, after that heated conversation, did the topic ever come up between you two again? He mentioned it once or twice, like, in, uh, I, I can't, still can't believe you believe that guy. You know, just like that. But no, I, I didn't pursue it in any way. But he, he wanted me to take it out of the book, but I wouldn't. I said, I'm not taking it out, Dad. Yeah, that's and you. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. The fact that something, anything, could become could come between a, a father and a son that have such a close kinship and a close bond. You know that he has vouched for you to make you a made man within the family. Uh, wow, that, that's just yeah. Well, it, you know, and, and another thing, when when the FBI told me that when the contract was out on my life, that my dad went along with it. I said, look, you guys don't understand. I said, if I was going to become a, a big informant, that could put my dad in a bad position. So I said, look, I don't believe my dad would have ever, ever, ever put a gun to my head. No, I don't believe that at all. And, and don't try to tell me that. I told the FBI that. I said, I understand what my dad had to do, and I want him to do whatever he needs to do to protect himself because I don't want to put him in trouble. So, um, and, I, and I believe that till this day, you know. But look, I, I honestly... Our relationship, I'll tell you when our relationship really, not to South, I mean, I always loved my dad. He loved me till the end, and, and you know, that's the way it was. But one time I had a discussion with him, again, after the fact, and because I, every time my mom and dad used to argue over something, I would always take my dad's side, always. And I know my mother was hurt by that, but I would always take his side. 
Before my mother passed away um, in 2012, I spent a lot of time with her. She was a rough woman. I always say this. My dad didn't make me tough. My mother made me tough because she, <laughs> she didn't spare the rod and she was a disciplinarian and she, she gave it to me. I took more beatings than anybody on the street from her. She would hit me with a guitar. She, I'm not kidding. She'd those spoon. She'd throw things at She was rough, but she made me strong. So I, I was having it. I was close to her when she was passing away and she really bared her heart and soul to me. And I felt terrible about it. So after she passed, I had a discussion with my dad and I said, dad, you know, you got to claim responsibility for what happened in our family. And he said, uh, no, none of this is my fault. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I was framed. I did all this jail time for a crime I didn't commit. I said, dad, I believe that. I'll take it to my grave. I believe it. I investigated the case. You're not a bank robber. You were framed. I said, but you weren't framed because you're a doctor, a lawyer, or a priest. You're framed because you're a criminal mob guy like me. I said, and you have to take responsibility that the family was destroyed as a result of your lifestyle, and he wouldn't do it. He said, no, not, not on me. Now, maybe that was out of guilt or whatever. I said, you can't blame mom. She's a single mother trying to get you out of prison, trying to raise four kids. It was hard, but he would not accept responsibility, and that really that upset me. It really hey, Michael, did. if this life is so tough— and it ended up, like you said, a lot, it destroyed a lot of families. And by the way, you mentioned something too. It's, it's funny because we did an episode with the uh, special agent in charge of the DEA office, uh, Sherry Oz, and she talked about getting, they were able to turn a guy very high level in a, a Mexican mafia gang, I think. But he, because he said the same thing you did. He said, they say they come visit you, but you know, the biggest reason he turned and started working for, as they say, Team America Never got a card, never got a visit, nothing. He went to prison and everybody forgot him. But, you know, mm -hmm. but like I say that to say this is that, you know, the life is so tough. If the life is so tough, why do people just fall into it then? I mean, why, why you know, you could have been a doctor, you could have been a lawyer, you, you know, I could have been somebody, I could have been a contender. But um, wh why does it, is it just because of somebody else did it, you know, my dad did it, so I have to do it kind of like an inherited gene, or is there a way to break this? I've had this discussion with so many people. Chaz Palminteri most recently were friends, and you're growing up in Brooklyn, and you're looking at guys that have the best cars, all the money, the women, the power, they carry themselves. at a It's very attractive to young people. It's very attractive to guys when they saw that back in those days. You know, I don't know how it is as much now because guys went undercover quite a bit, but it's extremely attractive. You know, for the last 25 years, I've been talking to these young gangbangers. I go in juvenile halls. I visit prisons. I try to get them to, you know, get on the right track in their life. And they'll tell me, you know, Michael, come on. We saw the movie Goodfellas. We saw this. You guys had the best cars, the best women. You had all the power. You had so much money. I said, OK, but did you watch the end of the movie or you watched half of the movie? I said, who went to jail? Who got killed? Whose family was destroyed? Who got buried in the desert? Yeah. You know? I said, how come you didn't watch that part of the movie? Or you think it's not going to happen to you? I said, that's reality. That really happens. That's the reality of that life. They don't see it. It's so attractive. You know what get me now? When I was part of the life, you don't understand how intriguing it is to people outside of the life. It's your life. But since I came out and I started talking all over the world, the mob genre is like so fascinating and intriguing to people. That's that's the only reason I have a platform. I didn't cause this. 
The media caused it. The movies caused it. The people look at this and uh, it's, it's unbelievable the way they react. I was in Singapore in front of 1,800 people, a, a ticketed event. Do you know that I was there for two hours answering questions about this life? In Singapore, the stuff that they knew, I was shocked. I couldn't even believe it. And it's, it's been the same all over the world. Murph and I talk about the same thing. I even brought it up to him. We actually asked that one of the questions for him and for Dave Mitchell, Chris Feistel, talking about the Cali cartel. Why is it 30 years later, people are still so interested in folks like Pablo Escobar? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you, you thought, you know, I mean, you, I, I know you said this too, Steve, you go, why does anybody want to make a series about that? That wasn't special. And it's like, oh, who really wants to hear us talk? And now seven years into it, you're still doing talks, you're still doing stuff. I think people have this desire. They want to live vicariously. They want the fun. They just don't want the consequences that come with the fun. So for them, it's the living vicariously. I can, oh, you had the cars and your point, Watch the rest of the movie, Skippy, because the movie doesn't end well for anybody in this life. Exactly. I mean, Pablo Escobar is bigger than life. Still till today, you mention his name. Everybody knows who he is. And and it's unbelievable. You're right, Mike, because you can say, hey, who's popular opinion Steve Murphy? And they'll go, who? But if you say who's Pablo Escobar, everybody knows. And and like with with the mob, it's. It's the mystique. It's the mysterious unknown. La Cosa Nostra. Just even the name, it's like it just invokes things. The Pope, you know, the, yeah, let, everything. Let, and then let Hollywood is really played it up. Hollywood is, I mean, they're responsible largely, but Al Capone is dead. He died in 1940-something, right? He was alive. From tax evasion. Yeah. Remember, not murder, tax exactly. evasion. But uh, it was his time was 100 years ago. How many things have been written and done about Capone? About a, two months ago, I'm in the supermarket. I'm at the checkout counter, and there's a magazine with Capone's face on it, right? Not only uh, the entire magazine was on Al Capone, 100 years later, the entire <laughs> it's magazine. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Now, they don't do that unless it sells magazines. Right. So, And, and you know what? I mean, Javier and I are, are filming right now. I, I can't tell you what number of documentary this is, 15, 20, I don't know anymore, about Pablo Escobar. And it's like, how many shows can you do on the same How guy? many ways can you slice Pablo Escobar and tell a different story? I don't know. It depends on how thin you slice him. I mean, shocker, folks. Here's a spoiler. Pablo's dead. He got killed. Um, but uh, yeah, but it's like, I, I think it is because it's kind of like, I know people will listen. You get to talking to people and they find out your line of work like for us. And they, they want to hear some cop stories and stuff. Because I think they like the, uh, the, the, the cheap adrenaline thrill that they get, you know, the cheap junkie. And I think with the mob and stuff, it's just, it's the Hollywood has turned this into, you think of the Godfather, you think of Goodfellas, you think of just the mystique that this has been made out of it. And then to your point, the kids watch it, but they never, they never understand what the consequences are. They just see the flash, the, 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 you know, the money, the lifestyle. That's it. And, and I, and I think it's, I think our objective is the same as yours, Michael, and in, in telling your story is you want the truth to be known. You want the, the, not the Hollywood version, you know, I mean, it says right in our contracts that they can employ literary licensing as they see fit. You know, we've, we like the saying that Hollywood never let the truth get in the way of telling a good story. Right. Yes. But, but it's with, I agree with, I firmly believe this about you, Michael, because I've seen you in San Diego twice now. Uh, which is where we got to be friends out there. And your story is always the same. It never changes. The story that I heard twice previously is exactly what I'm hearing today, which, you know, I'm not the world's best cop, but uh, it leads me to believe that you're still telling the truth. And when you tell the truth, it's so easy to remember what you're supposed to say, isn't it? Exactly. 
And that's to get the, the word out there that there's nothing glamorous, there's nothing glorious about being a criminal, whether it's in uh, Shylocking, whether it's in the gas, illegal gas business, whether it's a drug business, there's nothing glamorous about it. You you might get that few minute high that might last you until somebody tougher comes along on the street and takes you down. Because we all know that every time we took out Pablo Escobar, what happened? The Cali cartel stepped up. You take out the... the um, um, Al Capone, another organization steps up. Everybody is there waiting. Well, you take out El Chapo and look at what we got now. We got cartels that are far more dangerous, far more sophisticated, far more weaponized than mm-hmm. cartels than the cartels ever were. And it's like, where does it stop? Look, we could go on for a long time talking about this. We're going to be not, we, we got a little time, but I want to get into some of the stuff you're talking that you're doing now. Cause to me, yes. that's so important. Absolutely. And again, that's, that's the reason we wanted to talk to you. And, um, it talk about basically a life of redemption. So, but let's kind of un- or book in this too. With you have said several times your manifest. You said it was God's plan. I, I have to tell you too, and you'll appreciate this too. I would arrest people a lot of times. You'd go in there, you'd want to talk to them. They say, "Oh, I'm going to make a change. I've got a job. I found Jesus. You know, my life has changed." And that would last as long as it takes to get out of you know jail or whatever. Mm-hmm. What did it take for you for this to finally stick? You said you're a man of faith. When did you become a man of faith, and why? Well, you know, my my uh, wife and my mother-in-law were very strong uh, Christians, very strong in their faith, and they had an influence on me. But honestly, I, I wanted to do the right thing because I wanted to make a change in my life, but I wasn't totally buying into what they were saying because, you know, listen, I, I'm a mob guy with a mob mentality. You don't just turn it off. You know, this is who I was. I always say, you could take the boy out of Brooklyn. You can't take Brooklyn out of the boy so quick. And when I came to faith, I didn't get a lobotomy. I still remembered everything that, you know, was my lifestyle and everything that I did. But I was I was being respectful to them, and I wanted to hear about it. And I said, okay, if this can help me get on track, great. But that was it. But then when I went into, when they violated my parole and I was in that hole that night, uh, that first night was when I said, you know what? I was always in control of my life, but I can't figure this one out. The government says they're going to keep me here for the rest of my life. They're going to indict me on a new case. I'm in the hole. They're not going to put me out on the yard. They're going to keep me in administrative detention, which they did. I said, my wife, she waited for me five years in prison, 13 months on parole. She had a rough time. I'm going to lose the girl I did all of this for. Why should she wait for me now? I was out of answers, and I felt the weakest I ever felt in my life. You know, and I can tell you this, you know, I have felt every emotion you can feel in life from ecstasy right down to grief, everything in between. I've led a pretty full life in that regard. But uh, by far, the worst emotion you can feel is hopelessness. When you think it's gone and there's nothing you can do to help yourself, especially a guy like me that always thought he was in control. So I'm, you know, I used to demean people that were suicidal. I'd say, hey, these guys are weak. They can't take control of their life. It's terrible. I don't do that anymore. Now, I wasn't suicidal that night, but honestly, I wanted to lay my head on that cot, just not wake up. It was too painful to think about my future. And then it was that night that a prison guard handed me a Bible. He pushed it through the slide on the door. And that's when I started my journey. And I don't want to get into it because it was a it was a 29 month and seven day journey in solitary, 24 seven, six by eight cell, me and God. And I had my wife send me in a bunch of books on all different faiths because to to me, I said, look, 
you know, I surrendered my life to Cosa Nostra. I followed my life blindly. I said, if this is it for me, I got to know the truth. I'm not going to kid myself. If there is no God, there is no God. And if there is another faith that I should be following now, because I'm going to die in this place, then I want to follow it. So I really went into a search for the truth and, and came out of there believing in the Christian faith. And But I'll tell you, all of that is good, and I believe it with all my heart. Nobody's going to take that out. I'm not perfect in any way. The key for me was surrounding myself with the right people, because I found this out in life. In this life, we are who we are accountable to. When I was in the street, I was accountable to my oath. I was accountable to my boss, and I was a criminal, and I did the wrong thing. Now, I'm accountable to my God first. That doesn't make me perfect in any way, because if I didn't have his foot soldiers here, I probably would screw up again. But my wife holds me accountable. My children hold me accountable. People that trust and believe in me, I don't want to disappoint them. And, and every day, hopefully, you get stronger and stronger in your beliefs and your faith. So that's the key. And that's what I tell people. We need nourishment in this life because we have so many distractions and so many things that could take us in the wrong direction. We have to surround ourselves with the right people and be accountable to the right people in order to stay on track. And uh, look, I'm 71 years old now, and hopefully God will grant me a, a lot more years with my, my family and just doing the things that I'm doing. But that's been that's been the key for me. And, you know, this Sunday I'll, I'll be speaking uh, and I don't know when this is going to record, but I'm delivering a Father's Day message in a big church, Greg Laurie's church. And my message is being a man's man in the year 2022, because I think a lot of us have lost sight with that. When I was in the mob, I thought, you know, being a man was a tough guy. Well, that's not being a man at all, you know, and and biblically it teaches us how to be men. And I think we're losing sight of that. Many people are. And uh, and hopefully the message will resonate. I believe it will. But um, I just want to try to do the right thing, stay out of trouble, take care of my family and and be a benefit to people in any way that I can without, you know, without becoming a martyr. I don't mean that. But, you know, I think that's the, the road that I'm supposed to be on. And look, you know, if I didn't if I wasn't a former mobster, who the heck is going to listen to me? What's the big deal? But God has given me a platform. People are interested exactly. in this. So I use that platform to bring people in the door, get them in the door, and then they're going to they're gonna hear something that maybe they didn't think they were going to hear. But that's, that's it. And uh, I think God is brilliant in putting things together like that. Well, it's, uh, and, you know, our listeners have heard me say this before. I've been a Christian since I was born. My dad was a minister. Um, you know, that's, I'm being a little facetious there, so but he Murphy really was a minister. Up in this life too. He had no choice. <laughs> yeah, I had my first run in when I was about 10 years old with the cops, and, and I think he beat me into submission. Oh, that that was a good I paid thing. the price that night. But um, I, I love the fact that, that what you're saying, I agree. I love it. I love your story, man. It's, it's, uh, I believe that God has a plan for every single one of us. I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in coincidence. There's a plan. Everything happens for a reason. And the night that you walked into that room, you're attributing it to a, a variety of different things. Well, how could that all have just come about through luck or coincidence? That's 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 BS, is what it is, and it, and it's the whole reason that you're still here live, alive today. In my opinion, you know, this is Murph's humble opinion, is that God had a plan. He has given you a platform. I'm so proud of what you're doing. Uh, I was very very proud to call you a friend now, and I and I, I don't want this. Uh, interview to end because I'm really enjoying this. And I know you've got a, a million other things to do as we all do, but uh, you wait and see, this is going to be one of the biggest listened to yeah. 
interviews we've done because everybody is enamored and curious and wants to know about the inside life of the mafia. What's it really like? And it, and it is, it, you had buttloads of money. You had your own jet aircraft. You had your helicopters. You had boats and planes and, and houses all over the, the country. And, man, when you're sitting in solitary confinement, you ain't got shit. No. And you learn, let me tell you something, you learn you're really nothing. Anything can change in a dime. I don't care who you are, what you think you are. Look, I've seen the most powerful guys on the street, you know, living in somebody else's underwear in a, in a cell and then dying like a way you don't want to die, you know. So whenever you think you're too big for yourself, that's when you're you're on your way down. But, uh, you know, it's, you know, I got to tell you this too, you know, when I, I hated law enforcement. I hated them. They were the enemy. <laughs> they were, oh my god! I mean, oh no. No, no, I'm being I honest. Tell you, I hated criminals pretty yeah, much too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is how I grew up. I was taught to hate. You know that way. You know, you, I was taught. But you know, it's amazing how God can not only transform a heart, and you know, Murphy can do that, but how He can transform a mind. This whole created, you know, wrong point of view I had where good was bad and good was and bad was good. Today, my dearest friends are in law enforcement. I really mean that. And I found out we had so much in common in different ways. And, you know, the chief of police of Beverly Hills, the second in command there, uh, you know, very different, good Christian brother. He's now the chief of police over at UCLA. He and I are like buddies, you know, I mean, so many. And I said, man, Michael, your eyes were so closed in a way you just didn't understand. And, and I get it now. And I've, you know, over the past several years, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing. So, I mean, I'm, I'm proud and honored to be your friends now also. And I mean that I really well, do. And, and I mean, Morgan and I were out there with you in San Diego yeah. just a few yeah. weeks ago, a thousand cops in there. And when you were on the stage talking, you could hear a pin drop in that auditorium. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All those guys are just interested and and you know what? A lot of them are going through trials and tribulations too that we don't know about. And and they're and I'm I'm feeling pretty sure they're thinking, holy cow! If if this guy can turn his life around and be forgiven, maybe I got a shot here. Yeah. I mean, your message is so powerful, and you, and nobody's ever going to know how much influence you've had on yeah. everybody else's life except the good man upstairs. Yeah. You know, I sound like an, I don't mean to sound like an evangelist. No, it's not over. Yeah, <laughs> but that's, yeah. Hey, so but that's, checks too. <laughs> but before we close out, let's cover a couple of things. Cause I've got your list of books. You've got six books out. And the first one was the first one you written called, uh, the good, the bad and the forgiven. No, was my, that my very was first, first book? very first book was quitting the mob. Okay, there it is. Yeah. Um, which a, ti a title, by the which I hated. I said, "Man, you guys really put me on Front Street with that title." But they were right. It was a good title. It worked. Yeah, and I I liked the other book you had too. And you basically had um, you don't call it. Um, you said from the Godfather to God the Father. Yes. Um, you the faith and, and being a Christian has been a big part of your life. I want you. I want people to understand when we talk about redemption. It is one of those things to where, yeah, 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 you can say all you want, and you know it, and I know it. And uh, Steve, I'm just thinking of uh, a very big, tough-looking biker dude right about now, Mel Chancey, that oh, yeah. uh, here's another guy, Hell's Angels, you know, live that life and stuff. And so people are naturally distrustful that, yeah, sure, that's what you say. How long did it take before people finally said, yeah, Michael Franzisi, uh, and I'm saying it the Italian way, you notice that, Franzisi is not just talking the talk, he's walking the walk. How long did that take you to get to that level of credibility? 
Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, for some reason I was able to connect with my audiences right away when I, when I got out there for some reason. Look, I, I just spoke from my heart. I didn't prepare messages or anything like that. And I think people picked up on that. But, you know, I mean, look, there's still people that say I, I'm using religion to make money. I mean, this is 30 years later. They don't. But these are people on YouTube and they don't know what the heck they're talking about, you know, and I don't ever rebut anything. Um, but I think, listen, if you're consistent over a period of time, people have to start saying, well, maybe there's something to it. And it's been, you know, I started speaking now in, since uh, in 1996. So I've been doing this a long time. And I've spoken at over 1,600 churches and ministries throughout the world uh, in all different countries. Um, I've spoken to all of Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NFL. I've spoken at over 350 universities to our young people trying to dissuade them from gambling and bad relationships. I've gone to countless prisons over the, over the years and have written these books. They're now making a television series about my life that goes into production next year and a stage play that's uh, going to be shown all over the world. Get out of here. What's the name of the series? Do you know, can you reveal the name of the series or where, who's it going to well, be on? I, I, the, the tentative name is Billion Dollar Boss. I don't like the name and I'm arguing with it, but uh, it's produced by Kennedy Marshall. It's the biggest independent in the business. Uh, I cannot, guys, I'm sorry. I, they just signed the, play, the uh, actor to play Michael, but I, they they swore me to Omerta not to reveal it. <laughs> oh, okay. And you understand that. Yeah, they're going to. Yeah, because they're going to walk you into a room and that's right. sign exactly. an NDA. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I did that once already. I don't want to do it again. But uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm excited about it because uh, it, it's, uh, it was, it, I, I had a lot to contribute to it. And, and uh, I think it's going to be told. And my faith will come out in the series. So I told them, I said, look, if you're going to tell the story, tell the story. You know, so uh, and they were very cooperative with that. And Frank Marshall is is wonderful, and and the writer Ron Shelton is a a list writer. He's done a lot of stuff. So I was happy with everybody. But and then hey, they're Michael, doing a stage just, play. That's what I'm saying. You were in administrative detention, not considering suicide, but it was pretty bleak. You go from twenty twenty nine months and seven days in adseg or administrative uh, detention. Did what? Did you have, this is one of those trite questions, but you have to ask it. It's, it's in the rules of podcasting. You, you had, there, I mean, there's no way you could have had the idea is that you would have talked to this many people and been on the stage and have plays and doing stuff, right? What did you think your life was going to be on that 20, uh, after 29 months and on the eighth day, you know, and on the eighth day he arose, you know, and walked out of prison. What did you think your life was going to be when you walked out of prison? Guys, I didn't have a clue as to what I was going to do. Again, entrepreneurial spirit, I'll get something going. I, I didn't know. I had no clue. I never, ever dreamed of being a speaker. I got recruited. In my last couple of months, by uh, the FBI came to see me again. And I said, guys, get out of here. I actually They said, no, listen up. We want a favor from you. Long story short, they introduced me to Major League Baseball and NBA security. And they say, we want you to come and talk to our athletes about the dangers of gambling. You claimed you turned your life around. Okay, then put your, your action where your mouth is. And I said, okay, I'll do it. That's how I started speaking. In 1996, I went through all... All on an intro from the FBI. So you actually do have the FBI to thank for something. <laughs> I do. I do. I actually do. And in 96, I spoke to all the athletes in spring training. It's funny. Today, just today, probably right now, I'm on Brett Boone. I don't know if you remember Brett Boone. Him, His brother, Aaron Boone, is the uh, manager of the Yankees. 
So Brett Brune called me and said, do my podcast. So it's probably going on right now. I mean, I know all those guys from Major League Baseball because I spoke to every one of them for years about gambling and relationships. And, and then I started doing it in university. So that's how I started speaking. And then the pastor of my church, who I only met three or four times, but he married us. When I was in the hole, he would send me books and he'd send me money. And I even told my wife, I said, man, why is he sending me money? I feel bad. And she said, hey, keep quiet. He loves the Lord. In turn, he loves you. If he sends you money, you know, buy your cup of soup and commissary, my wife would tell me. So when I got out, he says to me, Michael, you have an incredible testimony. Would you please come to our congregation and speak? And honestly, Mark, when he said testimony, I didn't even know what he was talking about. Wait a minute. Do I have, yeah. Is there witness protection uh, involved in this? No, you know? That's what I, I said. Testimony. I thought you did that from a witness stand. I didn't even know what he was talking about. <laughs> yeah. So I, I started, I, I, I gave a few talks to the congregation and it just took off from there. I've never marketed myself in that regard. I can't even tell you how this happened. So I don't even claim credit for it because I didn't plan any of it. It was like accidental, you know, and then. But accidentally, God's plan. So now, you know, I've been teasing everybody because I, I got to tell you this. I'm going to make you laugh. They can now have a wine in my name, franziswine.com. They just launched it. Go on the website. You're Wait a minute. Did we see the bottle of that when yes, you were out yes, in San Diego? I yes, 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 yes. Francis, it was that black, it's kind of a very dark colored bottle, like a black label, right? Well, yeah. With red lettering. Well, it was yeah. a Malbec wine, so it was a red wine, but we have all different varieties, right? So there's Franzi's wine. There's a, a, a television series about my life, a stage play about my life that's going to play all over the world. I got a 25 speaking city speaking tour. They're making NFTs in my name. I got a, a pizza franchise that I'm involved with. And I just wrote another book. I said, hey, guys, you know what? This is really amazing. It took me a lifetime to become an overnight success. <laughs> that's what Toby Keith said. They said, yeah. you're an overnight success. It took me 25 years of playing bars to become an overnight well, success. Well, it's taken yeah. me a little bit longer than that. But, you know, I don't know why all these things are happening. I can't even explain it. But, you know, it's happening. So... Uh, I'm trying to enjoy it. And then and then the kicker for me, Rudy Giuliani, my arch enemy, who wanted to put me away for the rest of my life. Uh, about six months ago, a friend, a mutual friend has a radio show, Joe Pagliarulu. And uh, he says, uh, you and Rudy, I'm going to have you on together. So we go on the radio show together. He says some nice things about me. Right. And then my publisher says, you think Rudy would write the forward to your book? I said, come on, man. Now you're stretching it. Right. Well, they ask him, he writes a forward better than I could ever expect him to write it. It was unbelievable. So now I got the guy who's put me away forever, 30 years later, writing a forward to my book. It's, um, it's an unbelievable story. I can't even believe it myself. Well, it is unbelievable. And that is kind of the, it makes it weird because you have to say at some point you have to mature and say, look, we, at some point we all evolve. You can't harbor these things where... I've seen some people like, no, once a criminal, always a criminal. I don't want to have anything to do with them. Some guys like that. Some guys aren't. I, I think of some of the uh, people I know that uh, work counterintelligence in the FBI that became friends with the, at that time, KGB people that they were tracking down, you know, and now they're friends. They talk, you know, I, so I think, hey, look, if we can be friends with the Germans and the Japanese, I mean, we, Why not? You, you, you can think about it, right? So Let's talk real quick, too. Like, you've got six books out here, and I'm going to just tell people we're going to put it on our webpage, folks, so don't worry. But you've got Mafia Democracy. I like this one, though. This is your business book. I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. That one that one got my attention. Uh, Michael Franzisi, The Blood Covenant, 
from the Godfather to God the Father, quitting the mob, and the good, the bad, and the forgiven. Now, do you have, uh, you got another book coming out, you said? Well, Mafia Democracy was just released last, uh, uh, actually, when was released? May 17th. Okay. And um, it's uh, it, it shot up to the bestsellers list on Amazon right away in four different categories, actually. We're blessed on that, and, and also on Barnes & Noble. And that's the one, you know, the two books that I really put my heart in were God the Father, that's a ministry tool. Um, people that are really struggling, I give them this book. I probably have 10,000 of them in prisons that I've, I've put in across the country. And it's been very effective. It's, it's really my journey in a concise way, biblically presented, that brought me to where I am today. And I think uh, I, I put a lot into that book. It's very special to me. It's small paperback, and it's, uh, it's a short book, but it, it, it hit hard. And then Mafia Democracy... You know, for the past six years, I've just been so upset with the way government is operating. And I see it very mob-like. And I had to put this book out because I have kids and grandchildren, and I'm afraid what this country is going to look like for them in, in 20 years from now, maybe less. So, uh, um, and you know, the satisfaction I'm getting out of the book is that all the reviews and all the comments are, Michael, I get it. I understand it. I see it. And what do I want people to do about it? I don't want them to revolt. I don't want them to protest. I want them to go to the polls and vote the vote. wrong people out and the right people in and hold our government people accountable. When they make promises to you, campaign promises that causes you to vote for them, hold them to it. Don't let them lie. Because, you know, I, I say this to you, gentlemen, you know this. You have a friend, he lies to you one time. All right, you know, things happen. You get... The second time starts to get a little bit more concerned. The third, fourth, fifth time, hey, that's it. I'm done. You know, in politics, they lie to us right to our faces consistently on camera, on video, and we, ah, oh, it's politics. And no we big keep deal. voting them back into office. Yeah. And it's not yeah. politics, it's lying. That's yeah, what it is. Right. And, you know, I, I got to tell you this too. I am, I am incensed. I spoke to uh, 850 Border Patrol agents, state of Texas undercover agents about a year and a half ago. And the stuff that they were telling me about the southern border, I, I, am, I am just outraged on this. You know, the, the, they said they're not getting 10% of the illegal opioids that are coming over the border, not even 10%. I had my, bro my daughter's uh, boyfriend that she was going to marry in October died of, an, of a fentanyl overdose. You beautiful young kid. He was an athlete. They put him on these darn opioids. He got hooked and he, he, he got something from somebody that was fentanyl laced. He died within five minutes in my house, collapsed last October. And to me, it's criminal that we're allowing this stuff to come in over our open borders when we had 100,000 young people between the ages of 24 and 45 die of uh, opioid uh, overdoses last year alone. I don't understand how any responsible person, look, I spent 20 years on the street. I couldn't do something like this. I don't understand how this administration is allowing this to happen. It's, it's the biggest problem we have in America today. And aside from that, now they want to punish these poor guys at the border that are trying to maintain order. Uh, they were already cleared with this whip nonsense that they tried to con convict these guys on. And now they're, now they're trying to punish them again. What is going on here? I, I don't I, I don't want to get into another whole thing. I can talk for 10 hours, but this is why I wrote the book. This stuff has got to stop. You know, I, I'm, um, I'm very fortunate that next week I get to speak at the Big Brothers, Big Sisters National Conference in Indianapolis. And I'm, you know, 
we don't have the experience that you have in the speaking business yet, but it's, I can speak in front of thousands of people and I'm okay. I'm nervous about this one because I feel like it really is important. You know, it's more than just telling a story. This is important because of the, the, the bigs, the, the people who are helping the little kids that are at risk. And, and to me, that means something because it's our children. But in doing the research, in fact, I was just doing it today, putting the outline together for the presentation next week. 295 Americans are dying every freaking day from drug overdoses. Well, 295. But remember, Aaron Graham, so we we had, we interviewed him back down there. He was on our episode. Aaron was DEA. He works for the pharmacy, one of the uh, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, they don't do opioids, but we've got to distinguish between overdoses and poisonings because poisonings right. are things that are really getting these people, like you were talking about, Michael, uh, your future son-in-law. Um, they think they're taking one thing, they're taking another. It's not like they took an overdose of fentanyl or they OD'd on heroin or something. They're taking something like, uh, Steve, the one story we talked about, the young boy took a quarter of a tablet of Xanax and that was enough to kill him. So we've got the Absolutely. overdoses and we've got the poisonings and these chemicals are coming from China into Mexico being manufactured in Mexico and being brought where across our southern border. So you want to save 100,000 lives, it's pretty simple. You've got to enforce the law. We're not, Murph and I try and remain apolitical on stuff. Um, not our guests. Our guests are allowed to go anywhere they want to, mm. but but it, it's just common sense, right? You want to stop this stuff. You've got to support the efforts on the southern border to stop the infiltration of drugs, human trafficking. And by the way, who's making all the money off of this? Who makes all the money? The cartels do. This is not going to the old folks home or the nuns or some convent somewhere. It's going into the hands of the Jalisco cartel, the Nueva Laredo, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, you name it. It's going Morgan. to cartels. Yes. And I'll tell you this, Morgan, this book, Mafia Democracy, is not it's not uh, Democratic or Republican. It's bipartisan. Look at the system. But I'll tell you this. If it was my own brother in office, I'd be angry as heck at him as to what's going on. This is not political at all to me. This is a matter of a life and death. It's horrible what's going on. I just don't understand it. But I have to tell you this too. I have a, a lift coming to pick me up in about five minutes. I didn't, so even, let's, I didn't realize we were on this long. This that's is, okay. Let's end with this. We talked fantastic. about your That's books. a good give thing. Us, that's a good give thing. us a quick three-minute yeah. overview of your multi-city tour coming up in the UK. Very excited. It starts uh, uh, July 2nd in London at the Grosvenor Hotel. They're all dinner events. The first one is a huge gala uh, with a big... Did after you say huge? A, like huge? Yeah, huge. Like utes. Huge? Utes. <laughs> utes. Huge and utes. <laughs> uh, yeah, afterwards at the VIP after party, they have Earth, Wind, and Fire. They've got to do oh, the entertainment. But I love those guys. Ooh. Yes, yeah. I was. Uh, but it's uh, 25 cities. We're going to be all throughout the, the United Kingdom and Ireland we're going into. I'm very excited about it. Uh, it's going to be special events. My hosts are, you know, they're doing a great job. I think the tickets are selling like crazy. Uh, from what I'm hearing, I'm hearing good reports on that. So we're excited about it. Then from there, they want to take me to India and Australia and a few other places. So we'll see what happens. I love, do you know where you're going in India? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not familiar. Well, if you go to New Delhi, you got to go what's called the Red Fort. Just amazing. If you go to, and you have to have the tea service at Fort. If you go to Australia, as my mates down there, I'll hook you up with some uh, good guys down there, as they say. Well, you know what? I, I've been for, I've been there a few times, and I love Australia. And they love us over there. They love the yeah. Americans, so it's great. They love, yeah, yeah as they call it's them. Blast. Like, oh, that, crikey, mate. So anyway, hey, let's do this. Uh, don't hang up your browser yet. We're going to stop this. It's going to finish uploading. We're giving people kind of a technical thing, but can't tell you how much we enjoyed this. And right, we started talking, and I just looked at the time, and Murph and I both did. We said, well, we want to get this last part in, but... 
what a fabulous story of redemption. Yeah. At one time we all would have been, um, we all would have been on opposite sides. So I would have been looking to do something to you, you something to me and Murph, but I'm glad we have a society, at least with guys like us who can come to a point and say, what did we learn? How do we apply those lessons? And I love the fact is that you're teaching the next generation of people how not to be you that you were back then. You're teaching them how to be the you that you are today. Right. And Michael, honored, honored to have you on here, brother. I mean, and I don't say, I don't call you a brother lightly. You're my Christian yep. brother here. So looking forward to seeing you again in person sometime. Well, I, I feel the same way. And I, I don't think I've ever done an interview this long that felt so short. I didn't ever realize myself <laughs> it was this long. So it was great. And and I, one of my, I, one of my special skills, interview and interrogation, well, I could talk for 12 <laughs> hours and not take a break. He's, so, he's so full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, I hope we do get a chance to hook up again, you know, but you Absolutely. guys are, uh, are not in this area, right? You're not in San Diego or, okay. No, no I'm, in, I'm in Orlando and he's in Northern Virginia. Oh, well, okay. I'll, I'll be in Florida. Oh, on, uh, one of my, on September 30th, I'm going to be in Miami with Mike Tyson. We're doing a show together on stage. So, wow. Yeah, with Mike you know, Tyson. Mike Tyson. Everybody had the plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> it's actually a, it's a fundraising event for a, a candidate that I'm supporting for Congress. And Mike is a good friend of his also. So we're getting together, raise, raise some money for him and put him in office. He's a good guy. He's a guy we need there. So I'll give you wow. the details if you happen to be in the area, you know, and then I, I have a, let me know. I have a date in Sarasota on, uh, I think September 2nd. So I go to Florida a lot. I love Florida. So Hey, let's let's stay in touch and let's hook up while you're over here. For sure, Murph. All right. you, you got it. You be safe on your trip out there. We're going to put all your books up there, and we'll tell people how to find you online. You've got a website. You've got a speaking business. So don't hang up yet. But everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. I think I think we should start a new segment called uh, Godfather Trivia because I actually tripped him up on it. He didn't realize it like you did till after I played the music. There are words to the theme from the Godfather. Yeah, yeah. But then once you hear it, you know you've heard the song before. Yeah, but that's not the point. The point True. is from a, you don't you don't get to you don't get to retroactively answer your questions on a trivia contest. Oh, I knew that question. You're right. It was this. Oh, well then you win the five thousand dollars. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen that way. But anyway, hey, you but play no, by your rules. I'll play by my rules. Play by mine. That's right. But let me tell you, um, Michael is. Uh, you think for everything he's gone through, he would be arrogant, you know, and kind of maybe condescending because he used to be a made guy. He had. Anything but that. When we met him down there, he was very generous with his time. Yep. He was very nice to us. Uh, and he doesn't shy away from it. And actually, he kind of plays on it. And we actually we, we got into some good discussions about the youth of America. We talked about fentanyl. We talked about a lot of the other stuff and what he's doing out there uh, to help, you know, make the world a safer place. And this comes from a guy who was a capo, a capo regime in the Colombo, one of the major crime families, right. you know, in New York. So uh, I just, you know, hats off to Michael with what you're doing and to his wife, because guess what? It took the love of a good woman yep. to bring this guy around. Yeah. this I mean, it's fantastic what he's done here. It's uh, I've heard him speak a couple of times out there in California. And, and like, you know, we were just there a couple months ago, roughly a thousand cops in there. And when he speaks, you could hear a pin drop in there. And the reason is that it's not that the cops are in awe of him. They're there to learn from his criminal activity so they can address other criminal situations. But, man, he, he's articulate, extremely well-spoken. He presents himself professionally. Uh, nothing negative to say about, about Michael Francisi other than, you know, we're not, we're not proud of his criminal career. But like we said in the beginning, 
He's atoned for all of his actions. He's accepted responsibility, and now he's trying to do the right thing. So, Michael, as long as you're around, brother, doing this, we will support you. Yeah, not everybody's entitled to a second chance when they do the work, and Michael did the work to get that second chance. Definitely entitled to it, and we just want to say. By the way, go check out um, you know the website. We got all his six books yeah. <laughs> on there. Six books. Holy cow, dude. Dude is just a content machine. He's a media machine now. And I love his little YouTube stuff where he does, he get, calls them his sit down. So we get behind a lot. I thought it was really cool. We got the real stories behind the sit downs, how the structure of it works, you know, what the protocols are, the ceremony. It's a hell of a lot better than when we had Steve Matelski on and the only ceremony we saw were two guys in velour running suits in a motel. So he's going, okay, yeah, you're part of the family now. Now let's go hit the buffet before we got to go right. back to New York. <laughs> that, was, that was really pathetic, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and then you hear this and you go, why isn't it, you know, there's that mystique anyway, but hey guys, yeah. we hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you did head on over to Apple and Spotify, hit those five stars, let us know what you think about it. It's magic. It's Disney. It's Walt Disney world. We don't know how it works. It's David Copperfield, David Blaine, name your favorite magician or illusionist. All we know is that it works. Head on over to gameofcrimespodcast.com for more info about the show. We update it as we go along, merch, uh, you know, all that other stuff. Follow us on the socials at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And if you want to just do one for the cause, pause for the cause, paypal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes. Whatever it makes it easier for you. But Murph, let's end with this. Where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be. Where do you got to be? Got to get over on Patreon, just like we keep saying. It's And we're not blowing smoke here. The, the content over there, you're not going to hear anywhere else. It's more content than what you're getting here on the regular podcast. Just come over and check us out. Just give us a try. If you don't like it, okay. But give us a try and see what you think. I think, I think you'll be kind of impressed. Yeah, and Murph knows if he uses that C word, I'm going to reach through the screen and slap him upside the head. I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to be good. <laughs> but try to be good. Anyway, guys, but guys, but we want to thank you for doing that and for everybody for listening and supporting us. And just do, you know, tell one, share one. Tell one person about it. Share one episode. This is one you're going to share. And trust me, we've got some other stuff coming up. Uh, one of the victims that we'll be talking to um, of human sex trafficking, the terrible things that happened to her and her survival story uh, just reminds me of Sherry. And, you know, you can choose to be a victor or a victim, and she chose to be a victor. So this is going to be a good one for that. But again, we want to thank you guys once again for playing this thing of ours that we call <laughs> Sorry, the everyone. biggest, baddest, <laughs> most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes. <laughs> <laughs>